joined with James from my Harry Truman episode, but before we dive into uh, discussing Alistair Crowley, I'm going to hand over the mic so he can tell us what he's been up to lately. Hi Colin, and hi everyone. It's good to be back. I'm glad that we're um, making this another another episode. I have to add, um, for the Harry Truman episode, I watched the, the season two finale recently and I made an error in, my, in, the, in that episode, in that um, Harry, when he sat with Andy, I thought he was saying to Andy no to every request that Andy was asking him, like, do you want coffee? He's saying yes. And I found this out by watching that episode, the finale, um, recently with a friend who's seen it for the first time. And I was like, oh, oh gosh, he's saying yes. He wants Andy to go and get these things. And I thought he was saying no. So that's a, that's a, a footnote for that episode that I was wrong. Um, I misquoted harry on that but um since i last recorded with you um i've seen you i've seen all of our um twin peaks friends um some of your guests um again as well twice in a year which i feel very lucky about at spooky empire and promoting the twin peaks post uh web comic that i've been working on for the past year or so now i think it's been um essentially since the end of lockdown which is on twinpeakspost.com um but that's been mostly oh and obviously working um besides obsessing over twin peaks working in the film industry have a new job starting on monday um nothing by david lynch or starring anyone that we know from twin peaks but uh other than that yeah i've just been um keeping up with the uh the drawing with that so that's been it's been good fun and i'm glad to be here to talk about Alistair Crowley as I have a kind of a novice, um, not experienced, but learned experience with the occult anyway. I love reading about it, but not practicing it. So Jack Parsons and Alistair Crowley's mention in The Secret History was enough to get the sort of juices flowing about like, okay, Mark Frost is clearly in tune with the esoteric and the occult. And then we said just before this, uh, recording that you know he's obviously had this in his um, system for years and has finally got a way of talking about it and I always see the secret history I know it says it's a novel but I see it more as a sort of point of reference to um, connect the dots between ufology and esotericism because Twin Peaks the show delves into that mostly in season two in particular with like mentions of uh, messages from outer space um, with Wyndham Earl and with the lodges and so on. So yeah, I think it's a great sort of uh, starting point is to talk about as the Crowley anyway, for when it comes to the occult particularly. He's like the godhead of the occult, it seems. Oh, I absolutely agree. His segment, it's all, I guess, effectively in past tense, mostly yes. because he's dead by the point that mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Jack Parsons talk about him. So unlike my previous episodes, I'm going to start with the secret history aspects. And then we'll just go through and uh, talk about his biography and we'll incorporate the Twin Peaks aspects. Uh, But to start off, the first time that he's mentioned Alistair Crowley, uh, it's actually first mentioned by L. Ron Hubbard when he meets Richard Nixon on October 17th of 1949. 
Uh, at this point, Nixon is just a congressman, uh, and the but he, but uh, Hubbard feels compelled to tell uh, Nixon about all these things that he's discovered at the parsonage, and uh, Hubbard describes him as the most evil man in the world. And he tells Nixon about like the drug use, the free love, and the sex magic rituals at the parsonage that were effectively inspired by Crowley. And then the next part is that he's actually mentioned in a recorded conversation with Parsons when Hubbard is at the parsonage. And uh, Hubbard talks about all these like strange room, there's this strange room in the upstairs with all these photos. Uh, Parsons confirms that it is Alistair Crowley, the beast, and also refers to him as my friend and teacher. And then when Hubbard asks about his death, uh, he uh, Parsons responds with, he shed his body just last year, which is a really interesting way of uh, describing his death. And then Hubbard asks about his uh, Crowley's infamous heroin addiction, and Parsons says he didn't need drugs, he was drugs. And then uh, Tammy, at this point, she actually does confirm that he, he did die at 72 because of his addictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit of conjecture to that, but we'll get to that when we get to his death. Um, I guess before we get into the Dougie Milford stuff, did you have anything to say about like Elron Hubbard's perspective on this? I found it interesting because uh, in my notes, like when I was going through uh, his biography, that at some point um, when this is towards the end of uh, Alistair Crowley's life, when he uh, we can t- we'll talk about the the formation of Otto. The um, uh, I can never say the name properly. That his um, his order to do with um, Thelema. Um, when he gave up uh, his head of the the sect to Jack Parsons, um, at that time Jack Parsons was actually performing uh, the Babylon working um, to bring about. Uh, we can we'll go into this as well that bring about the Moon Child essentially, which is a, a central figure in Asa Crowley's novel called Moon Child uh, with Marjorie Cameron. But they, they, as these rituals were going on for several days, during this time, Elrond Hubbard um, ran away with Jack Parsons' lover at the time, who happened to be the half-sister of Jack Parsons' wife, who had herself ran away with the previous Otto leader. So it's quite Twin Peaks' invitation to love right there. There's a whole um, soap opera uh, developing behind the scenes with them, but I didn't really, before reading The Secret History, I had no real um, knowledge that L. Ron Hubbard had had much of an acquaintance with Alistair Crowley himself, um, more so with Jack Parsons, but not so much with um, Alistair Crowley. Um, and I always, to start with like, you know, his, his, the, the biography of him, um, I always quite liken um, Alistair Crowley to the, the dweller on the threshold in Twin Peaks, um, that he's a gatekeeper of sorts, um, that he understands the unknown, um, but is not trying to make it his own. Like he really knew through the rituals, through the many books, I think he wrote like 70 books about the subject, um, particularly about Thelema. Um, He wrote his own biography um, up until, I think takes his life up until about the 20s. Uh, but he, I liken him to that, and unlike, and I was going to mention like later on uh, about Wyndham Earl, uh, almost it feels like a an amalgamation of Jack Parsons and Alistair Crowley if it all just went wrong. So it's like because uh, Wyndham Earl does not understand the lodge; he's in there and he can't make it his own. It's not his rules; it's the lodge's rules; it's the entity's rules. And then um, it's funny. We'll, we'll go as we go through 
um, Crowley's life, there will be uh, mention particularly about white and black lodges. Um, but yeah, what, what was your experience with the, the L. Ron Hubbard side of things? Um, from what I could gather, and this is mostly why I did my research for Jack Parsons, is that uh, I, from what I understand, oh. L. Ron Hubbard never interacted with Alistair Crowley directly. Right. It was always mm. just, uh, I, I think it was more so Parsons would like write letters to uh, Crowley in his latter days. And uh, the things that Parsons was completely just like, he, he was, he loved L. Ron Hubbard from the beginning. And the things that Alistair Crowley, I think he just referred to uh, Parsons as a fool for believing any of his stories. And uh, so, so just without meeting with a sight unseen, Crowley could see right through him. And strangely enough, I think that a lot of this, uh, and more so again, just through the Parsonage, a lot of this kind of set off uh, L. Ron Hubbard, because at this point he wasn't a Scientologist, he was really just like some like hackneyed pulp writer and a disgraced naval officer. And the thing is that, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think a lot of this just set off the idea of like, because uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, he talks about it a lot where he says that, uh, or he said that uh, it was mostly uh, starting religion is like the most profitable endeavor you could go for. So right. I think he, I think he knew how to how to effectively refine what Crowley was doing because things that Crowley, he he definitely has a very dedicated following. Like the Lima is, I, I would say, is more of an underground thing. But Elron Hubbard, for better or for worse, and even if people just laugh at it, people know his name uh, if you talk with a casual conversation. So I think in a strange way, Elron Hubbard did effectively refine it in a certain manner. But uh, again, we'll just go through that uh, as we we'll, we'll talk about that more as we go through. I, I'd quickly like interject with that. I, I liken um, L. Ron Hubbard and Alistair Crowley's uh, relationship to um, J.M. Barry, uh, who wrote Peter Pan, and um, uh, I think it's Charles de Maurier, who was a writer at that time, and he he wrote um, he wrote about Svengalism, and it was. His, his uh, de Maurier's books were written from the perspective that it was um, it wasn't manipulation. He, he wrote about a lot of hypnosis and like changing the the will of the self, which is something that Crowley was very very much about. Uh, whereas Jane Barry used it as manipulation. So you can kind of see that Crowley was, I'd say, for better or for worse, sincere about what he was doing. Um, whereas L. Ron Hubbard saw dollar signs um, to make money out of uh, such a such a movement as much as jay and barry saw manipulation as a as a tool for for people in um, in his works but i wanted to start with like i'd see um alistair crowley as something of a, a forward-thinking sort of before his time uh, feminist in a way um in his uh, book the book of the law which is an incredible book it's sort of like a newer testament as it were um, one of the lines in it immediately is that all men and women are a star and that what you're saying is um, it's quite a, something I believe in is that everyone has a universe inside them and everyone has the, the, the means and the ability to change the will of where that is going. And I think in the um, secret history as well, Jack Parsons mentions another famous line, um, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law and the law is love, um, which is a firm, like it's a thelema. Uh, uh, motto, as it were, but he, um, Alistair Crowley, he, like he mean, he was a, a prolific writer, like he, you know, a whole library of books. He was a painter, a poet. Uh, he was a famous mountaineer at one point. Um, obviously, a cultist um, and bisexual, which is interesting to mention because at that time, 
and it should be mentioned because at that time it was considered highly illegal. So he, he, he delved into um, other sexualities uh, as practice where it was otherwise seen, you know, you, you get uh, chem- people were chemically castrated for pursuing such acts in, the, in, in wartime. Um, but he was born, born in 1875, so that gives you an idea of where we were in terms of laws. Uh, he was a sceptic throughout most of his young life. Um, he, was, he was born Edward Alistair Crowley, he shirked the name later on in life. Um, and he was always challenging his religious teachers at school um, regarding the inconsistencies in the Bible. So, you know, from a sort of religious upbringing, was always questioning the things that were presented to us as a, as a, as a text. Um, and he lived that colourful bisexual life filled with other non-Christian vices, as it were, like he was a huge drug taker. And like you say, Jack Parsons said, he, he didn't just take drugs, he was drugs. Um, and the downside of which, like for his sexual vices, he gained numerous diseases. And then as we'll get into it, his um, drug taking secured the end of his life. So he was a very um, colorful character from the get go. So, And uh, I guess the next part would be uh, the Dougie, Dougie Milford. He talks about Crawley with Parsons on December 3rd of 1949. Uh, Parsons tells Milford about Crowley's quote unquote important work. And it's like we were mentioned about the Moonchild is that it's a ritual that was attempted in Europe. And I believe that it, uh, Crawley would try to attempt the Moonchild because he had two Scarlet women in his life. Uh, yeah. That he, uh, you know, he tried in Europe, but never in the States. And that uh, Parsons uh, also, he expressed potential regret and worry with Milford. Just, I, I think just a lot of this stuff. And then Tammy mentions a letter that she found of Crawley's that was to Parsons, where uh, apparently after Parsons began leaving the Pasadena Lodge, Crowley told him about uh, how he researched like Hell's Gate. Uh, mm-hmm. he, uh, he didn't really specify, at least in this letter, but he was convinced it was one of seven gateways to hell. And uh, this is in reference to, in the secret history, of the Devil's Gate in the Arroyo, in Arroyo Seco. And um, also, which is where um, which is where JPL was uh, formed, right? The jet, well, Jet Propulsion or Jack Parsons Laboratories. They had their base situated there, which is quite interesting. Yeah, no. In, in the case, uh, actually, the the best thing about mention about uh, JPL is that it was in the desert, and mm-hmm. uh, this is where a lot of stuff. Where in this part of secret history, I thought a lot about Part Eight. I think about just how central Part Eight is, not up to season three, but just the entire Twin Peaks mythos at large. So I, I, I think of like Frost, like his uh, his inspiration of like the desert and what it means to him, like through this different lens now. Because I read the secret history after season three, so this completely recontextualized it for me. Right. So when I saw the, um, because I was familiar with uh, Crowley and Parsons' work prior to uh, season three, when I saw part eight and saw, you know, the, the I think it's referred to as the, is it the experiment? or the, the experiment model or, you know, birthing uh, these entities. It's very interesting because, um, you know, there were rituals that Ursula Crowley performed um, in Scotland, but there were obviously like Jack Parsons went through with the Babylon working around the time of, you know, uh, nuclear and rocket testing. Like he was quite obviously in the previous episode, he's quite a prolific rocket engineer as well as um, dubbing himself the Antichrist. Um, but with with Crowley with the with the Moonchild that that book was written 
he wrote that book in America, I believe. I might, I could be, I think it was in 1915. It wasn't published until 1929. So, and it was interesting in that, in the book, it's about the ownership of a, of this engineered child, essentially, like um, a sort of ethereal being um, called the moon child uh, between the black and white magicians who belong to the black lodge and white lodge respect white lodge respectively but they're also the white lodge is the allied powers and the black lodge is the central powers which is like you know german you know german germany and um, the other surrounding countries are central powers but uh, interestingly he at this sort of time before he moved to america um when he was part of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Alistair Crowley, um, he, I mean, the, the, the Golden Dawn sort of inspired um, the order, like the Order of Thelema. Um, he had a, he went to Egypt and wrote a, a whole book, like the Book of the Law, which we'll talk about. But he, um, the, the, the practices of the Golden Order, they involved, it's not like a normal religious cult because they studied metaphysics, uh, para, the paranormal, uh, spiritual development, which is quite um, quite apt for uh, Alistair Crowley's later life. Um, and interestingly, it was also an order that allowed women to be a part of it. And this order was around between 1888 and 1903, um, when they would much less be considered as such as equals, as like equal to men at that time. Um, but it's strongly suggested, and this is where like Crowley's a, a double or a triple agent. Um, he claimed that he was a spy for British intelligence um, to, in order to undermine the order of the, the Golden Dawn's founder, Samuel Mathers, who they believed at that time was a Carlist, which is a, a like Carlism is a movement which supports the Catholic Church and opposes central government and was named after Don Carlos, who, who claimed the Spanish throne at the time in place of um, King Fernando VII's daughter. So he was depicted also as the, the villain in um, Crowley's novel, in, in, in Moonchild. Um, so he was, he then moved to the States, I think in 1915, sort of the height of the war, and he was considered a traitor because he moved to America, which at that time was considered a neutral state because prior to their involvement in the war, and he wrote, pro-German propaganda, praising the Kaiser, um, advocating the attack on the Lusitania, which killed many Americans who were on board. And people say that this could have contributed to America's involvement, siding with the Allied powers, but not totally. But then again, double agent. Crowley claimed that he was working with British intelligence um, and only produced that propaganda to create such an end result. So it's a lot of confliction about his life at that point. So it was even, I think, I think it was as late as World War II. Um, Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond novels, wanted him in as a, an interrogator for Rudolf Hess, who had landed in Scotland. And Rudolf Hess had a keen, as much like as much as a late stage Nazism at that time, had a keen interest in the occult. So I thought he would have been apt, but this is obviously much later in um, in Crowley's life. So yeah, it's um, very colourful leading up to and over his course of course of his esoteric sort of beliefs and teachings. At that time, he was using the world around him um, politically, um, 
for some better gain in it, like using the esoteric and at that at that time, which is quite an interesting like stake for him, I think. The thing I thought was interesting is that you said the novel uh, Moonchild, it was uh, 1929. Uh, in the secret history, though, there's a little asterisk where it explains what the Moonchild is. I forget mm. who writes, I, want, I, th I think it's uh, Dougie Milford, but the things that he refers to is a 1923 novel. I know Mark Frost, he's the type of person where he sprinkles a lot of like deliberate wrong information. Uh, do, did you have like anything about that inconsistency or anything that may or may not have seemed awfully enough to this point? Well, well, at that time, um, around 1929, um, British publishers uh, were not publishing Alistair Crowley's work anymore. Like he, he was getting to the point of um, he was quite desperate for for power, and um, his losses were come, becoming a lot more evident. And then the British publishing houses at that time refused to print his work, so he moved. He resorted to Parisian publishers. Um, to get Moonchild out there. And um, interestingly, at this time, he, this is where we get into the sort of quite sort of dark side of him. I mean, he was quoted as being the wickedest man alive in the press, and he dubbed himself the Great Beast 666. Um, he wore a talisman called the Segala, which um, was intended to find, its purpose was intended to find great treasure. And it was smeared with uh, dried semen and menstrual blood, and both of which were appropriated from a male lover. Um, it was the poet Victor Newberg and his uh, wife, second wife, Leah Herzberg, respectively. So he was obviously quite determined at this point. To, I mean, it didn't help at this time. Like he, he did involve a lot of drugs in his work. Uh, there was an earlier time where, you know, he, in 1909, he met, he met his purported mentor, George Cecil Jones, and he advised the use of fashish as an aid for mysticism. So like much like hallucinogens today um, are purported to connect us to the other side. But I feel like at this time in his life, it was obviously quite wrought in him. He was, um, he was a heroin addict at the very end of his life. Um, I know we're skipping ahead slightly, but when he before he died at 72 years old ravaged by that addiction he his last words he apparently cursed the doctor uh, for not letting him be administered uh, heroin on his deathbed and then in the um the following 24 hours that doctor died under mysterious circumstances so yeah i think the the, the um the nature of Crowley and his rituals like i say like uh, the dweller on the threshold there's a full understanding of what is could be maybe um, no one will ever know for sure beyond this this realm of existence. But he definitely took it upon himself to undertake that understanding, and um, the understanding of which, like, we can go into why he wanted to, uh, why he was doing all these rituals, why he was um, like a firm believer in another side. Um, he famously dubbed himself the Lord of Lord Bolskin of Bolskin Manor, which sits on the edge of Loch Ness in Scotland. And it's um, quite secluded. And that's where he practiced a lot of his um, sex magic. And at this point, I want to say that, you know, there's a difference between magic and magic. So when you read about Alistair Crowley, you see the word magic thrown around, which is magic with a K on the end. Um, and magic uh, describes 
anything which uses willpower to manifest change, which always makes reminds me of uh, Cooper in the uh, Roadhouse uh, when he's gathered everyone together when it, before we reveal uh, who killed Laura Palmer. He incites magic. Um, magic, however, refers to things which use willpower to change the person and move them towards their true will, which is something that Asda Crowley was very, um, very keen on. Um, but in this in this bowler skin manner, he he hosted a whole like he hosted a whole um, plethora of rituals for sex, magic, and magic um, in this secluded spot in Scotland, and it was. Quite famously, uh, it belonged to Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin at one point. So you wanted to talk about like that, the the Beatles and the Led Zeppelin. So I think that'd be a good time to pop them. I in guess the one sure. thing I want to mention before we talk about them is that with uh, magic with the letter K. From what I understand, uh, mm -hmm. Alistair Crowley saw that there was something significant about the number eleven, and that uh, with uh, mm -hmm. K being the eleventh letter in the alphabet, that that really added something special to it. But the thing I always thought was interesting is that with Mark Frost, his Twitter handle is mfrost11. So I really, right. that's something I've always <laughs> thought about. When I, I remember when I really looked at the first time, I was like, wait, this guy probably knows the stuff about the occult and probably stuff about Aleister Crowley and that this was not just something that was overnight for him, not just something he got into like before the secret history, but this is something that's been with him for a long time. Uh, I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts about Mark Frost in relation to uh, in relation to like how he viewed Alistair Crowley, at least through the lens of the secret history. I think he um, it's interesting that he writes about him posthumously in the in the secret history. There's no uh, transcribed uh, interviews with Alistair Crowley himself. There's no dialogue from him. Um, it's all from the perspective of L. Ron Hubbard and uh, Jack Parsons. And I think in a way, maybe Mark Frost kind of reveres uh, that work. I mean, he's not unlike L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, everyone knows, most people know, they link him to Scientology and, um, you know, that was it the, everyone famously remembers that terrible John Travolta film, is it Battle, Battlefield Earth? I yeah, think. that was Battlefield Earth. Yeah, right. And that was written by L. Ron Hubbard. So there's, it's quite a, uh, there's a lot of comedic undertones there. Like if you've ever seen the Louis Theroux documentary about Scientology, they're kind of a joke at this point. And then you can get into the darker side of like, you know, missing people, um, missing wives of heads of the, the of, of the sect, which is quite dark. But as the Crowley and Philema doesn't have as much of a over, over overtone compared to like Scientology. I'm not comparing them at all because they're completely different practices, like what their, the belief systems are completely different. Uh, but when I, I read an interesting post the other day, it was like, uh, do you, it was on Reddit, that like there's a subreddits about Thelema and, and Crowley and people do practice, this is what I wanted to talk about anyway, but it's like people do practice uh, some of the masses, some of the rituals. There's a lot of single person um, rituals that you can perform. And I've read them, but I'm not going to, like I say, I'm interested in the occult and esotericism, but I'm not going to perform any of these, any of these rituals. I just don't know. Like I'm very um, firm believer in like another side and I don't want to invoke anything into my life that could otherwise uh, diminish it. But the, um, you know, people were asking questions about uh, 
like Thelema uh, as a basis, like uh, what do the, like certain rituals mean? And someone said, uh, do you think that Alistair Crowley performed a ritual that would uh, darken his name when people talk about him? Because I, admittedly, when I was doing the research for this episode, I was like reading about him, I was like, oh, this is, this is quite dark, you know? So like, this is the, the hardest I've delved in him. Jack Parsons feels like a bit more of a, a tangible, presence to read about to to write about like he feels like i think maybe because he's quite a a grounded person in like you know the technolo technological side of uh, human nature but alistair crowley is a bit more uh less structured and someone asked that like, do you think he put a um put a curse or a or a hex on the mention of his name would give people like the heebie-jeebies as it were and there was a lot of conversation on there about the possibility of doing something like that. But I think um, ultimately he's quite revered as a, as a character. I think like being called things like the wickedest man alive. Um, the thing is like with, with like the church of Satanism, it's not prolifically evil. Right? I don't think there's any evil in there as such. It's like another uh, way of living that we're not used to because we're, you know, religious, religiously structuralized with, um, you know, modern religion. So anything like this, anything to do with Crowley, I mean, he does do some out there wild stuff that I would never want to get involved in. But um, it's a, it, I think it's quite a revered uh, religion that he, he came up with amongst like, I guess, like sci-fi and, horror and fantasy writers and particularly Mark Frost that they appreciate what he's done, but there's no real urgency to diffute what he, uh, what he set out to do, you know, to sort of um, negate what he'd done. So there's no, in, in the secret history, there's no uh, bad mouthing of the character. It seems more of a, a reverence. I mean, even in um, Jack Parsons, uh, side of the interview like considered him a mentor and a friend and he did and it's true and he was called the wickedest man alive and he was drugs like that's an interesting um, aspect to look at him at like because he was a huge dabbler in um, hallucinogenics and uh, drugs as mysticism so I think Mark Frost's uh, take on him is certainly one of reverence and one not to toy with uh, I, I, I guess besmirching that person's name uh, because he's quite a prolific writer, even if people aren't on the surface level, when you talk to people who don't really know about him, like uh, they, they, it irks them, like the mention of his name and uh, talking about the occult and everyone famously um, misinterprets him as like the head of uh, the Church of Satan, like having, he had nothing to do with the Church of Satan, like it was um, completely separate from that. So I think, um, yeah, in my opinion, um, Mark, Holds him in some reverie. How about your your what your what's your take on that? Um. Yeah. Actually, I'll I'll get into a little more about with uh when Tammy oh. talks about on page two forty eight. But to follow up with a lot of the stuff you said immediately, I think of uh the use of his name and uh, I forget what her name was, but there's uh someone she's part of the OTO in New Mexico and she was on a podcast. I think it was within this year or last year where she said that uh, and I'm totally paraphrasing her and to a certain extent Alistair Crowley. But he said some that, like, those who know me wholly call me Crowley. Those who know me foully call me Crowley. Right, so, okay. So I think, this is, I think this is what leads to the whole, like, people don't, well, one, why people are so divided on how to pronounce his name. 
but also that there's an undercurrent of like why people mispronounce his name. So that that was something I mean, I I'm was gonna interesting have... in terms of like if his name invokes something darker. And to follow up what you're saying about like uh, the actual participation in like these types of rituals, I remember I think it was at least five or six years ago. He didn't. He didn't say it was the OTO, but it, he said that he was a part of an order. One of my friends at the time, he talked about who was part of an order, and he invited me to a sex magic ritual. And I was like, I, even he had this hesitation No of like way. how he said it. I think when he said it out loud, he thought, "Oh, okay, maybe this will really put people off." Because we were actually at a, I think it was a Fourth of July party, no less. Right. Wow. And. That's uh, that's interesting. Dates are always um, conjunction of dates and numbers are very prevalent in in Thelema as well, which is interesting. Yeah, So and yeah. I could tell that like, he was very deeply invested in the occult just from other stuff because we would talk a lot about Alistair Crowley, Anton LaVey, and a lot of similar uh, similar Oh, it's figures forgotten. of the occult. And all I could think was that I was like, I don't know, I I don't think I want to go with the sex magic ritual. I feel like I, I don't want this to be like a I don't know, I don't want this to be like something from like Sandman or Promethea where something goes horribly wrong Yeah, and <laughs> you I'm you just there to see it at the forefront. you just let yourself go just roll with the tide it's fine <laughs> but So. i've forgotten about anton levey actually yeah so that's quite interesting i don't think they had any involvement I um no, they they had no direct involvement, but I do know that Anton LaVey, which by the way, to anyone listening who doesn't know who he is, he is the writer of the Satanic Bible and yes then the Church of Satan during the yes 60s. yes Uh well it seems like uh Anton LaVey, he had a it was kind of a more looser version of Do What Thou Wilt, where it was more of like a not shaming people. But I think in terms of some of the rituals, Anton LaVey probably wasn't on the same page with them. Mm This -hmm. is a bit No, of a, this is a bit of like surface level conjecture, but there's just a lot of differences uh, with the two of them, despite the fact that Anton LaVey was indeed inspired by him. yes, there's a lot of um, when you you compare the texts that they have, like I feel like Crowley, I hope I've been saying his name that way the whole time because <laughs> I don't want to invoke anything into this room. Um, Crowley, uh, the way he writes is quite biblical. Like when, when you read the book of the law and you read the book of lies, um, which are the two that I've read like a few times now, and that's where that that line about every man and woman is a star comes from, which I, I, I hold that. It's very strange because uh, when I got into like conspiracy theories from a young age um, and then you sort of delve into, oh, there's actually religious sects, uh, sects based on this, uh, this sort of stuff. And then um, that was the one line that stuck out to me. And weirdly, I think that sort of held a reverie in my heart was that, yeah, everyone is the is one and the same. Like there shouldn't be any difference that every man and woman is a star. I think it's a quite a nice, uh, even though this is written by the wickedest man alive, quite a nice, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm trying to find, to, to, to describe um, how to be. I think it's a, it's very interesting, which, which is why when I'm reading about him, I don't feel any fear or, or horror as such. Um, I just find him quite an interesting uh, book to read, as it were. Um, Do you, do you ever read about his uh, his mountaineering expeditions? Honestly, if you looked at just as his career as a mountaineer, uh, there's a big blemish that we'll talk about when we get to it. But honestly, it was actually pretty cool that he like, uh, I think that he did mountain climbing because one, it was like a solo endeavor that he loved doing. And also, I think he thought that it, using it without the equipment also made him a much better person as well. Yeah, I think he thought yeah. very lowly of people who use the equipment. 
But I think a lot of it also is that he's dealt with a lot of, like, you know, a lot of setbacks with his health. Like, uh, he he had asthma all, uh, mm-hmm. throughout his life. He was actually out sick for months at a time in his life. More, more so in his early years, but he still had that even in his adult life. So, honestly, if you look at stuff like that, it's actually really interesting. But uh, it's, like, also, I think one of the few activities where he's pretty much removed from the occult as well. That and chess yeah. in particular. It, it, made, it made me um, actually view him as a as a, a grounded person, which is what I was saying about Jack Parsons. Like, oh, he had, like, um, he had corporeal sort of interests, you know, actual, like, this this plane of existence. But although, so he, he had um, attempted K2, and he became so stricken with malaria that he threatened to shoot uh, the other mountaineers with him. Um, but he also was part of an expedition to climb, and I'm probably going to get the name wrong, but Mount Kanchenjunga. It's probably a better way of saying it. But it's the third highest mountain in the world in the Himalayas. And um, it was famous in that four of his teammates were wiped out by an avalanche. And he wanted to continue on, and he... He only turned back uh, when he was informed by one of his Sherpas that um, I'm going to say jo- uh, jo- Jonah, I think it's, it's, it's spelled D-Z-O-N-G-A, which is a Yeti-like demon that resides there, was appeased with the sacrifice, so he turned back. And I, I always, I love cryptids. I have to say, like, I love reading about cryptids and like listening to experiences and so on so and i'm always like confronted with the idea of the giant um when you know you talk about uh bigfoot or like taller entities that aren't of this uh plane but i thought it was very interesting that the only point he decided that enough was enough was that a, a local demon legend was appeased with the sacrifice of four dead teammates in his expedition I guess also on that note of uh, Crowley having limits is that uh, there was a ritual where I, I forget if it was through the OTO or if it was something else later in his life. In fact, I kind of forget offhand where it was when this took place. I want to say it was the 1910s, but apparently there was a ritual where it was going to involve the rape, murder, and dismemberment of a virgin. And wow. Crowley was like, no, like that yeah. I'm not doing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, again, the bar is really low in terms of like, well, at least he didn't rape murder and dismember a virgin but yeah. he does it does show that he does have a cutoff point of like that's too much i mean he has some cutoff points i mean the, the he performed a few rituals there's some questionable ones there's um he involved some sex magic with her like his wife at the time leah hersig uh which included copulation between herself and a goat which is um and goats are famously the iconography of Baphomet. So yes, he has limits, but there are some questionable ones that exist anyway. Like there is uh, something called the uh, Mass of the Phoenix. And I've read it, but I'm still not sure. And I reached out to a, a Thelemite, like, cause they, 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 you know, they're still around, like people who are part of the, the, the Church of Thelema. Um, what actually, what does the mass of the phoenix invoke and it was um they it's only a single ritual person there is a a whole uh, slew of instruction but during that um ritual you have to consume what is called the cake of light which is a communion wafer of sorts which is made from uh, honey olive oil the oil of a bremelin which um so 
there is something called the Book of Abremelin, which we must uh, we, we should talk about. Um, and the oil of Abremelin is basically an oil made of cinnamon, myrrh and galangal, which is like ginger. Um, and mixed in is uh, blood and semen. So you, you consume that during this ritual. But what this ritual actually invokes, I actually have no idea. But when you think of the phoenix, it's like a rebirth. It's like a born again, I guess. Um, this person I reached out to didn't get back to me. And I'm not as yet prepared to like delve into subreddits for fear of mockery um, in that in that uh, in that essence. But um, he so the book of Abremelin, um Let's go back to, to that. So he he wrote a lot of his teachings of Thelema in his house on Loch Ness. Um, and interestingly, quite Twin Peaks, he formed a lodge. And what that is, like in, in, in his teachings, it can be a room accessed by a door. And there, you have to lay earth in there anyway to make this a lodge. And in he in the Book of uh, Bremelin, he performed a ritual and its purpose was to claim a guardian angel. And Crowley um, explained later on that this ritual had actually gone wrong, um, that he had actually invited, <laughs> um, how true this is, uh, I have no idea, um, had, had invited the 12 generals of the armies of hell into his home. This is in the Bolskin Lodge in, in Loch Ness. And to this day, um, quite famously with people who visit there, it's it's haunted, right? it's famously quite haunted. It burnt down twice in 2015 and 2019, but whether that was anything to do with that, I don't know. There was a whole um, redevelopment, uh, not redevelopment, but a refurbishment of the lodge, uh, of <laughs> the lodge, of uh, Bolaskin Manor happening as we speak. Like you can get involved in that. And it was famously the home, uh, well, not the, it was like, I guess like a holiday home for uh, Jimmy Page of uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, so there was, for, for, for all his intents and purposes, it didn't go quite well with certain practices that he was um, trying to perform. But what's quite obvious in, when you read his teachings, when you read his uh, rituals, um, that survival and longevity uh, seem to be his goals, um, seem to be, his his true will as it were um when he practiced and this again gives me twin peaks vibes um when he was practicing what is called the amalantra uh, working which the purpose of which is to allow extra dimensional entities into our world and that obviously strikes up conjures up thoughts of uh the man from another place bob mike uh the giant um, there was no, in, in, in the show, obviously, there's no such ritual taking place. The, these entities just sort of appear, but you could say that's because of the gateway that was opened in 1945 in the desert um, because of Jack Parsons, like can open up a whole, whole realm there. Um, but he apparently made contact through a portal with an entity called LAM, which is spelled L-A-M, um, which if you look it up, Right, and I, uh, I, I advise your listeners to do so. You can look up a portrait of, of Lamb, and it looks like a, a grey, what was a, a typical grey alien, 
um, of which he drew its portrait. And some people say that it's it's actually a portrait of Alistair Crowley seen through that lens, but he was conversing with this entity. And interestingly enough, uh, Lamb is also the shared name of the seed mantra of the Muladhara root chakra regarding survival. So he was obviously invoking magic through rituals to prolong himself, whether it be on this plane or, or the next, like it's um, most definitely probably the next, through these teachings, through these invitations, through these invocations. Um, in the Book of the Law, uh, it invokes the image of a giant, as it were, because he had, a, he had contact um, while he was writing this book in Cairo with his first wife, uh, Rose Edith Kelly. Uh, he invoked the, it's like a pseudo Egyptian deity known as Ivo, I want to say Ivos. Like I, I've heard it called Iwas. Iwas, so yeah, I think, I, I feel like there's a silent V in there maybe, but um, Iwas will go, will 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 refer to throughout Faris because like there's a lot of names in here that are, uh, that can, um, you know, saying them could be like completely wrong. But Iwas, um, so it was to do with the coming of the age of Horus and um, like flicking, flicking back that his um, novel Moonchild also influenced Jack Parsons' own written text of uh, Libra 49 or the Book of Babylon, which was about the Babylon workings to invoke the Moonchild. But this is where it all came from, that he was in, um, he was in Cairo in 1904 um, between April the 8th and 10th. And he he was uh, I was was referred to as uh, Crowley's own guardian angel. Um, he appears as three different uh, things. So he appears as a tall, dark man, which invokes to my head like an inverted giant. Whereas like the giant I feel is like a an entity that is helpful in Twin Peaks. To say a darker version, whether that means like skin tone or like a shadow or a demon, I'm not sure, but it sounds like an inverted uh, version of help. But it's also, he's also appears as a, a pyramid of light, but he's also revert, referred to as Satan with the seal of Baphomet. And um, around this time uh, in, in Cairo, Crowley was gifted something called the, 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 of uh, the steel or the steel of revealing, um, and it was held in the newly opened Egyptian museum with the coincidental catalog number 666. Um, and it was made for, at that time, in ancient Egypt, for a Montu priest. And Montu uh, was a, 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 it was like a, a falcon god uh, regarding conquering vitality for the pharaoh. So again, we go back to survival and longevity. Um, and that Montu priest was called Ankefen Konsu, which is what Crowley also referred to himself as. And it depicted the three, three of the gods which Crowley communed with. So there's Newt in there, spelled N-U-T in Egyptian god S in there, um, in order to write the Book of the Law. Um, so that that's famously become his, it's probably his most famous book is the Book of the Law about like uh, regards to how to live, um, how to prepare for the age of Horus, because um, he, there were th it's three ages essentially, 
um, the age of Osiris, the age of Isis, and then the coming age of um, Horus. And I think the age of Osiris regarded regarded death, um, the the resurrecting god, as it were. So like the sort of you know the the, the Jesus story essentially, like die to rise again. And I think that's something that Crowley was certainly interested in but unlike <laughs> go to windermill was doing it the wrong way i don't I, he was communing with these entities as it's purported as he's written these books um uh and accepting them into his life to listen rather than to conquer which is what i think that's why i say like earlier on that to me windermill is a an amalgamation of because Widermel uses technology to pursue his goals, like in you know, state of the computer, the shock collar, and so on, um, uses a plethora of, of disguises, his best of which is the uh, horse or cow or whatever it is to get garden bricks. But he doesn't understand, like um, Windermel does not understand the Black Lodge. He's dedicated his life to finding it, but does not know what is in there, what will happen um i think in one of the later episodes he appears before leo i think it's probably like episode 20 20 or 21 of season two and he's got black teeth and he's like really pasty and pale and i feel like he's been to the black lodge at this point or to the waiting room because that's what it is it is the waiting room that we see i don't think we've ever seen the black lodge uh, televised as yet but um he's been there thinks he understands it and he's prepared to go in again because he knows about the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, but he doesn't understand what will happen to himself. He thinks he's in perfect control because he understands it, but he doesn't. Like Alistair Crowley, I feel at long length through orders that were like, like the, the golden dawn were sort of the, the foundations of further teachings like to, to use them to build up further foundations because you've all got, like everyone has to learn from somewhere. So I feel like Alistair Crowley definitely took uh, being in these orders before forming the, the Church of Philema and so on to break the groundwork that was there and go further, which I don't think many people had decided to to do before. So yeah, I, be, I believe that there was a an element totally in his life, totally in his teachings, that was about survival and longevity, but made it of the self, like to find his own true will. So I'd say he might have been quite a conflicted person, but for someone who's written 70 books on the matter, I feel he was quite sort of astute in what he believed. This totally. actually makes me think is that, uh, this ties in the secret history and very loosely Wyndham Earl in terms of being in something that he might not have a full grasp on. But I think of that portrait of Lamb that you're talking about, where it has that very gray alien look. And the thing mm -hmm. is that this uh, predates, I think maybe only by a couple years, but still predates the uh, Roswell crash before it the does. gray aliens yes. really yes. became, a, became a, a concept that started to circulate around like on a larger scale. Uh, do you think there's anything about the interdimensional aspect of what Lamb was? In terms of like was it and also maybe awas as well in terms of being a guardian angel because from what i understand awas was not exactly a benevolent guardian angel this is something that was a little more on the malevolent end and totally. uh do you think there's something uh i guess 
like I said, very loosely like Wyndham Earl, but that he was meddling with these powers that were like way in over his head and uh, and had an upper hand as well. Because uh, he's dealing with some very serious stuff, and the fact that he actually made this portrait before the Roswell crash, it really speaks volumes of what he was tapping into. I think like the there there are certain key things to keep in mind with Alistair Crowley Crowley at this point was that um gotta make sure I say his name properly. Um, so like that he was obviously involved with these orders, that they obviously had their own beliefs. I mean, Baphomet has been a almost like a, a figurehead for Freemasons and I guess the Illuminati for since the Bavarian uh, Illuminati, which goes back hundreds of years. But I feel like you definitely have to be of a, a sound mind to, this is why I say like, I, I mean, it's not in my interest to uh, perform any rituals, particularly making uh, cakes made of my own blood and semen anyway. Um, you definitely have to be of a sound mind, but there's a, you know, there, there's a whole, um, idea that objects have history objects have stories objects have um histories behind them so it's interesting that at this time of writing the book of the law that he was gifted interestingly gifted and like egyptology like the the museums out there uh, i guess for that time might have been considered fine but these days you're very hard pressed to do any further archaeology into um certain places like the uh, pyramids of giza but the fact that he was gifted this object I and mean, it obviously spoke to him as such and obviously in invoked these i think it was quite an important piece to have uh, as part of whatever ritual to invoke uh this iwas and his um his writings of this, uh, particularly because his wife was involved at the time and she wrote the, the book from uh, dictation from himself, um, definitely conjures up images of the word of God in like the Bible, like having testaments uh, recited to the, the, the authors of them. Um, I think he definitely had had to have had a, a sound mind in order to invoke spirits because as much as you could talk to your friends and so on there is a fear of the unknown as much as people would not be willing to admit like uh, for example myself like if you sent me into space I'd probably lose my mind like the the insanity like space madness would definitely take over knowing that I'm seeing infinite nothingness. And I think someone of Crowley's uh, mind was able to overcome overcome that fear because he was dedicated to finding this true will. Um, it's interesting that he 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 used Iwas as a, a guardian angel of sorts, but didn't perform the, um, the Amalantra working until later on in his life with Boleskine Lodge and maybe he was trying to get um, Iwas back into his life. Maybe he was trying to invoke this deity back in to um, speak to him further. Like this was towards the end of his life. Um, but with Lamb, it, it's a spooky drawing in my head. I mean, it's quite cartoonish. I mean, it, it's quite, um, but it definitely evokes uh, gray aliens and, that's a whole other 
conversation in a way like i said that i'm, I'm interested in cryptids and like the unknown and like gray aliens come up um a lot obviously because that's the the definition of abduction and sightings and so on but that they uh reside in the spaces between spaces like other planes of existence um like you can look into like things like bigfoot and the gnostic gospels and so on like mentions of races that don't actually appear further than uh, what they do in like biblical texts and you should never take that as pardon the the, the the pun but gospel but the the idea that there were other things other machinations going on at a time when we were quite young as a human race that these uh, creatures or entities and even say this about like bigfoot and so on can traverse uh, planes of existence like to step through folds in time step through portals and that's why we can never take photographs of them and that's why they're always blurry because they interfere with um the physical electrical energy of our existence um there's a whole it's a whole other <laughs> like a whole other conversation beyond crowley but i feel like he definitely understood at this point in his life i mean where, where was he? he was in pasadena the parsonage as it's mentioned in the secret history he was there during that time. Oh no, he was in, sorry, he was in America, but he was in New York when he um, drew the picture of Lamb, I believe. Like, so that was, uh, I mean, it's said that like America as a whole uh, invites a lot of this uh, cryptid and um, esoteric activity. It's quite a young country um, compared to the rest of the world, but there was a lot of, uh, you know mysticism there anyway before christopher columbus even landed maybe even before the um vikings famously apparently landed there um it's a it's a it's a, it's a hub of uh we have we have in england in england we have ley lines and there it's where like strong spiritual energy meets and like one of the most um like prevalent like combinations of those lines is Stonehenge and that's why it's so prolific in mysticism but in America there's a lot of invocation there's a lot of history that's there that um western history is still very young to understand um so it's there's a lot going on I think in um in the states and I think that's why Alistair Crowley moved there because there was a there's a draw, there's a draw of energy there. There was something there that he had to explore. And I think it's like, you know, the, the images of, um, you know, the woods, uh, the mountains, that there's something in the woods in, 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 um, in Twin Peaks, like it, it invokes, it conjures um, mysticism. And I believe that it was not just besides the fact that he was working for British intelligence, but I feel that there was a, there was a draw there and that his meeting of Jack Parsons in particular encouraged that. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I tried looking this up, like to see how many times they'd actually met in, in their lives. Um, he had a lot, obviously with the, um, with the auto, oh, you're going to have to forgive me here. The, the auto, the uh, auto templis, uh, Orientus, I believe. Orientus, that's it, yeah. So uh, apart from that handing over of the um, of being a figurehead to that organisation and their meetings in uh, in Pasadena, there's not much there about 
um, how prolific they were in each other's lives. But I feel like Mark Frost obviously drew on something, drew from something in research that they were obviously very close. They were they were closest people. I feel like Jack Parsons was more of the. This is going to sound. It's going to sound kind of corny. Um, how I compared like L. Ron Hubbard and J.M. Uh, and um, Crowley to J.M. Barry and Charles DeMario. Look at it like Jack Parsons and uh, Alistair Crowley uh, could be, you've got a grounded person and you've got quite an esoteric person, a quite out there person, Mark Frost and David Lynch. Like you've got like a, you've got quite an interesting story device there. Whereas Jack Parsons was obviously quite grounded with um, the physical plane and the technology that um, is around us. And he was a pioneer in rocket engineering. Um, you've got Alistair Crowley, which wants to, who, who wants to reach to the other side, uh, finding teachings, finding a way to prolong spiritual existence, I'd say, rather than physical existence, like to prolong and to understand what happens. I feel like you've got a bit of a David Lynch person there. It's not fair to, I mean, it, some people would argue it's not fair to compare like the wickedest man alive to David Lynch, but I don't think Alistair Crowley was the wickedest person alive. I mean, he wasn't Hitler. So, <laughs> you know, there are a lot more wicked people out there. I think wicked in the sense that he was unconventional. He was um, coming up or being told ideas that were asleep until he woke them up i think it's a really interesting relationship that they had um jack jack parsons was not meant to use um marjorie cameron during the babylon working either he was meant to be with his uh, i think it was helen his wife at the time uh, before she ran away with um the auto I, I think in the case of Jack Parsons, his wife was Helen, but he was with Sarah at that point, her mm -hmm. uh, half-sister. And uh, yes. this is around the period where uh, we're coming back to Hubbard and Parsons, where I would say Parsons effectively... Oh, sorry, sorry, I got I got that wrong. Sorry, yeah, you're right. He um, Parsons' lover at the time was the half-sister of his wife who ran away with the previous leader of Otto. Sorry, yes, go on, oh, yeah. sorry. No, but uh, but in the case of uh, like the ritual that uh, Parsons and Hubbard did, it was like they effectively finished what Crowley started because Crowley seems like he had tried. Uh, like I was saying, mentioned earlier, is that there's two Scarlet Women mm -hmm. and they just didn't succeed. But in the case of Jack Parsons, where he does this ritual, I think it went on for a couple weeks, and they're in the desert, That's and it, then yeah. he comes back, and basically Marjorie Cameron is effectively there. And yes. she seems to be a really prominent part of his life. And this is totally conjecture on my end that I mentioned the Jack Parsons episode. But it seems like this is where his subsequent downfall kind of occurred. Because, as I was saying before, Elrond Hubbard ran off with uh, Sarah. Uh, mm -hmm. He was losing his looks. He, I mean, he was finding work, but it was not what JPL was. Yeah. Uh, you know, the days of Jet Propulsion Laboratory and, like, making, you know, uh, defined science with uh, rocketry, those days were long past him. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. It's, again, this comes back to the whole what Crowley and Parsons may or not have evoked, where they, in the case of Parsons, he got what he wanted, but also it seemed like it didn't quite work out the way he wanted it to. I, I feel like, yeah, because he wasn't supposed to perform this ritual with the... Like, Marjorie Cameron became... She was an actress as well, right? So... Um, but this wasn't the, I mean, she was um, lauded as the, like the goddess, essentially. 
I, and it was apparently that he wasn't supposed to have performed that ritual with her. And you're right, it went on for weeks, um, all to conjure the, the the moon child. But I think from that point, there is definitely a, a, a downfall for both of these men's lives with Parsons and Crowley in that Parsons uh, died in a mysterious explosion in his home, whether it was from himself or from... Was it the Iraqis or the Amer or American assassination, whichever, um, or whether it was totally a part of what he was supposed to be doing? Like it's it's still not um, quite sure. You've also got um, Crowley who has given in to something that is very much part of the physical plane, which is drug addiction. But drug addiction is sort of straddles that uh, straddles that window of um, the physical and the spiritual, uh, I've always been of the understanding that you need to have a very sound mind and a very clear conscience if you are to divulge in any hallucinogenics because it amplifies whatever you're feeling at that time. Um, if you're feeling down, please, for the love of God, don't do mushrooms. It will just, it, it will just explode in your mind. Um, but this is a person 72 years old and his deathbed, um, cursing the doctor as the final words of his life to give him heroin i mean for to, to what end i mean how what further you're already ravaged by it what how much further can you go and it was um maybe it was a, a gateway but um you go back to like his mentor saying maybe use hashish as a, a as a means of uh, traversing mysticism um there's definitely an addiction there. There was definitely um, the physical. This is right. We, we allude to the, the the shedding of his body, like shedding of the the physical uh, plane, because it, I guess it's uh, seen as a, a sense of release, like because he was a very, albeit great beast number six six six. He was a very spiritual person. Um, it's very clear, like the, the, if you read the book of the law, it's written in such sort of lavish uh, beauty, like you, you can't, you, you don't seriously sort of see it as being recited to someone from a, a dark entity. There's, there's such a lot of positivity in there. And I think for like uh, the age where it was written, a completely different time to now, I mean, it, it his um, beliefs and his um, his way of thinking, his way of doing, definitely impacted uh, you know the like lifestyles of the, the sort of out there lifestyles of the sixties and seventies. You see him crop up in like modern media. Um, he was in uh, he he sort of alluded to in a film called The Love Witch, which is a great film about like. Uh, ritualism and the occult and it's filmed through the lens of as if it's filmed in the 1970s as a sort of garishly colored uh schlocky horror film which is beautiful but his you know his his phrase like uh, all men and women are a star is in there um in the x-files there's a there's a an episode about a ritual in a high school and the, the high school is named after as uh, the crowley so he his ideas are quite rife, I think. And I think uh, a lot of his ideas 
do i mean you're not too far away from you know on social media and on instagram and facebook or whatever people are saying about like they're blaming the stars for their mess ups or like talking about their star signs you're only like a couple of stones throw away from them being members of the church of thelema you're not too far away from like seeing uh, similarities in the stars and the deities that uh, alistair crowley quite welcomely invoked into his life um and like the, the use of egyptology is always interesting because egyptology was always about the stars like the, the pyramids of giza were built in in like in alignment with uh, orion's belt like the three pyramids obviously like as the, the skies do change then obviously we can't see that now but he was obviously invoking from extra dimensional extra dimension extra dimension and <laughs> extra dimensional beings yeah like well extra dimensional mentality like that he was invoking this uh religion was considered like sort of long dead and only being really rediscovered at the turn of the century through archaeology um that this was the the religion to invoke such uh scripture from you know it's a very it's a very interesting time of his life in that uh, that that short time that he was in Cairo that essentially formed the Order of Thelema. But I, I know that, I mean, I know you, you wanted to talk about the Abbey as well, which is in, is it in Spain? Uh, that was Sicily, I believe. Sicily. So, oh, okay, completely different country. And in, in Italy, like, it's long since abandoned, but you look at it like it's a, it's a tiny little building. But if you can make, in his understanding, if you can make anything a lodge, then the space in which you're in does not matter because you are opening up a whole realm right there through through teachings through ritual it's very it's a very interesting interesting life that he had sorry to get so like involved in it like he's, it's a very um very interesting person to read about no that's the thing is that out of all my secret history specials i've done so far this is the one that i actually had to like really mull over just right. because it's people have very distinct biases. Like, you know, if you have people who are Christian, they have a very distinct way they look at Crowley. People are in Thelema, they have a distinct way of looking at Crowley. And then you look at the legacy that he had. Like, you know, we were talking about Jimmy Page, where he was someone who was so entrenched in the occult, he bought Crowley's home. And yeah. I say I'm going to like the Beatles, like um, and with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, he's the one on the second top left of that whole row. And yes, one thing that I thought was interesting is that that album starts off with Paul McCartney singing, it was 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play, and it's pretty much close to 20 years after Crowley's death. I think that mm. he died December 1st, 1947, and I believe that album came out uh, early June 1967, uh -huh. and there's been speculation if that is actually Crowley that they're referring to, because the thing with uh, that album cover of Sgt. Pepper is that I think it was Ringo Starr who said that that is basically a wall of their heroes. And mm -hmm. I think out of the four, John Lennon was the one who was more deeply entrenched in a Crowley's philosophy. Because I think he was the one who said, uh, even in the days of, like, I think it was around the Hard Day's Night era, where he said that you know, his philosophy was, do it thou wilt, as long as it doesn't hurt people. Right. And there's a lot about John Lennon where, did he really, did he really adhere to it? I would say no, but that's a that's a story for another time. I mean, but, I mean, the Beatles were uh, quite infamous for sleeping with each other's wives leading up to their uh, stint to India. But interestingly enough, like I mean, it's the same album cover where the first uh, iteration of which had um, Adolf Hitler 
Yeah, and it had Hitler and Jesus on it. So that was where it's like, that's where the idea of it being a wall of their heroes started making me think like, oh, well, this seems like it conflicts with them. But I do remember seeing those set photos as well, where it's like it was off to the side. Yeah, so he's definitely a a big influencer. Well, particularly in that era of the 60s and 70s, like the free love movement in particular, I feel, um, whether... I mean, he he called himself Baphomet as well, which was um, like he had so many nicknames for himself. But like that's a, a huge deity in like Freemasonry um, and in, in the Illuminati as well. The the way to join the Freemasons, I remember doing this as a as, as a kid. Like I was, I think I was like sixteen at the time. Um, I emailed the uh, Freemasons Lodge in London. This is sort of a, a bit of a sidetrack. But they replied in saying that you can join if you have the belief in a deity. They didn't I- I express which deity. They just said a deity. And when you look at them, I was like, at the time, like dialed up internet, I'm like, well, what do they believe in? And before it comes up. But you, you can, you don't have to. Be, it's not like the Simpsons episode or that alludes to it like you save the life of a freemason you can be invited or you're related to one um you can but as long as you have the belief in a deity you are welcome to their lodges and we filmed in one of their lodges uh just last year we didn't film in the in the temple room or the the ritual rooms but we we were filming the corridors because weirdly enough they look like um american government building corridors (laughs) Uh, like to do with like the White House, they looked like exactly the same. Um, but we got to explore these rooms, these uh, these hu- like huge, uh, a huge room with like you know uh, awnings with seating everywhere. So there's a lot of people who get involved, and all the stained glass has some imagery that alludes to Thelema. Interestingly enough, like the falling dove. Um, which is quite prominent in their imagery, um, went into one of their, I guess, like a sort of, a, a, I guess, like a knighting ceremony room where like, you had the checkerboard floor, red drapes, um, like the eye in the pyramid on a scepter. It was very uh, interesting. Don't know if we should have been in there while we were there but we went around and like we just like explored and the people who were there were very happy for us to to look around so it's strange it's almost like you could say it's like a covert way of allowing it into your life by being like let, let the public be okay with what we're seeing but in in like as we said I feel like um L. Ron Hubbard was very public with his um ideas for the, I don't want to offend any listeners who might be Scientologists, but for profit, whereas Alistair Crowley uh, was definitely of, it was more of an invitation to open up your mind sincerely if you if you were willing to go down that path. And like I've said before, like it was formed during a time where homosexuality and uh, equal rights was definitely not, an okay thing so the the these orders allow everyone in um interestingly i don't know how he was with other ethnicities like it's not really it's not really alluded to and that you can safely say that he probably welcomed everyone of every creed color and nation whereas when you read about like say someone like hb lovecraft he was definitely 
referring to his own xenophobia of other races. But when you look up Alistair Crowley, you can't find anything posthumously because like with writers posthumously, you always find out something about them um, in like in Luther, Roald Dahl, H.P. Lovecraft, J.M. Barry. Uh, but with Alistair Crowley, there's, there's nothing um, to suggest that he was nothing more than an egalitarian. He believed in everyone um, being a part of these sects and these orders. So yeah, he's a definitely a colourful character. But like I said, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna invoke any sort. Of, I'm not gonna invoke Iwas into my life. I'm, yeah. I like reading it from a from a, a stand a certain standing. And uh, I guess uh, with that, and this would be the last thing to touch up on with uh, the secret history in particular is that on page two forty eight, there's like a huge information dump with uh, with Tammy and how she feels about him. And uh, she talks about it where how Crowley, how he appropriated from a satirical novel by, um, uh, I believe Rabelais. it's Rabelais, and mm. it was effectively removing the satirical aspect. And uh, right. she goes on to say that he took credit for, quote unquote, inventing Thelema. And uh, she also talks about his travels to Egypt where uh, leading the writing of the Book of the Law from a higher power, uh, and uh, that he said he was in a trance state. But uh, Tammy uh, basically dismissed it as that it was likely opium or hashish. Uh, also, she talks about how a lot of his writing is lifted from the Book of Revelations, which is actually true. This one, I, I at least from my well, my research, that's true. But Tammy scoffs at that notion, and yeah. uh, she and this one, I think. Uh, I mean, th th again, I know this is total conjecture on her part, but I think she kind of actually sums up pretty well. She's like basically equally fascinated and repulsed at the same time with him. Right. Because it's like we were saying before about his mountain climbing and his studying with, uh, you know, I, I believe it's the Dalai Lama in Tibet, but she is completely repulsed by his perversions. And she even likened him to being a Bond villain, which that last yeah. part, I don't know if I would say he's quite a Bond villain. I think he's a little, I don't think there's a world Less domineering, so. like at least certainly not in the, like a traditional manner. Not, his was, not, not yeah, yeah, not a physical playing world domineering. Yeah, I don't he, think his so. was more like, for example, when we were talking about him coming to the U.S., it was more of just establishing Thelema like firmly in the roots of America. Right. Uh, from what I understand, his time in New York City, he did not like it at all. I think his no. only takeaway is that he liked the ice cream because he couldn't stand how hot it was. Right. I know he traveled to places like New Orleans and a few other metropolitan areas, but. Uh, it just seems like just because he was heavily stay his like a lot of his writing was in New York City that a lot of the other places were just places he visited to establish the Lima. But I think that as far as the secret history goes, I think that kind of sums it up. Uh, before anything pertained to his actual biography, was there anything else you wanted to wrap up in terms of the secret history aspects? I feel I feel like with Tammy's um, sort of footnote there i can definitely see like a, an allusion to the the book of revelations but he were he he was writing it as almost like a a continuation like a a newer testament obviously with like um other deities involved but he never really used um opiates uh, and uh and drugs until 1909 like he never well as, as far as like biographically concerned he never um invoked them and he wrote the book of the law in um over the course of a few days in 1904 so whatever transient sort of experience like um experience he had during that time it's not really clearly defined what he did in order to 
converse with I was, but at that time, drugs weren't really a sort of form of, uh, which is which is insane because when you think about it, like you know, drugs take you to another another side. Hallucinogens take you to another side. Um, but he wasn't uh, an advocator of that until a few years later. But I don't know how that you know. I mean. It's all from biographers. It's all from uh, other sources. We're not sure how much of a drug influence he had at that point. But what is definite is that it definitely ravaged his life at the end. Like he was, I, I think, I'd hope that he got to where he wanted to be. I don't know why, but I hope he, I hope he did. But um, it sounds like it completely like the physical pleasures took over and the spiritual goal you know yeah no that's the thing is that uh is that like despite the fact that everything is like through a posthumous lens in the secret history yes that there's okay. so much you can talk about just like i was saying before is that that huge information dump from tammy uh, a lot of that actually is pretty accurate um i mean like I, i'm thinking like for example when i did my jack parsons episode with david bushman he was talking about the appropriation of the Lima and how mm -hmm. it was based off a satirical novel. And the thing right. that David Butcher, like, uh, I mean, uh, if you've read any of his books, like he's, you can tell he comes from a very scholarly perspective. Like he wouldn't say that unless there was like a very clear cut reason they felt compelled to say it. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on the crux of uh, Alistair Crowley's life and his identity, if it was like based off of a, a satirical novel that may or may not have went over his head. Um, do you mean if uh, would I have a different viewpoint on him if it was as such that it was a satirical? Because I mean, he he before like forming Thelema, um, which comes from the, uh, the the Greek word will, wish, want, and purpose. Um, before that point, he was already heavily involved in uh, esotericism, and like I said before, like. Uh, in these audit well particularly the the, the hermetic or uh, hermetic order of the golden dawn he was definitely involved with them and i feel like that was uh to further his understanding because you need a, a start point you can't i mean how, how do you learn if otherwise i i don't think it was from a satirical in my in my ideas, because of how many I, I like, like I don't think he was a. I know in later later in his life he was short of money, he was desperate, and but I don't think during the the height of his life, um, the height of writing about these things and the height of uh, the the rituals that he was after money and power. I think he was after a further understanding of what it is to be here and how you can translate that into the there, like beyond um what we are so I, I hadn't really sort of thought of the uh of uh tammy preston's uh, note about rubelais like i guess it's worth mentioning is that i i think of it in the secret history i definitely think of it in the final dossier especially the last chapter of it is that there's definitely a distinct subjectivity of tammy because oh, totally. you know in, in in season three uh alfred or not alfred a albert goes through all of like you know her credits like being like the top of her class uh, her status in the FBI. So this is not someone unintelligent we're dealing with. It's just that no. there's definitely that subjectivity. And also, like, when you reach the end of the final dossier is that 
she feels like she's kind of just like losing it after the events of like part 17. Yeah. So, and the thing is that a lot of this, I'm pretty sure, at least Final Dossier, maybe not the secret history, but there's just a lot of that subjectivity and uh and like all those different factors of like where you come from so uh, i but i think the if we're going to take for a moment like you know just presume that what she's saying is fact i would say though it does kind of remind me of like what we we're talking about with Wyndham earl where the whole idea is that they dedicate their whole life to trying to find this uh like more malevolent power but once you get to it you don't really you're not really ready for the scope of it no. and i think there's it's sort of like i was saying about jack parsons and while Crowley didn't, you know, failed at summoning the Moonchild, that uh, that there's a lot in his life where once he summons something, something can go awry. Like it was like I think which I fr I think which I forget which ritual it was, but it was somewhere in the early 19th century or not 19, uh, early 20th century where he uh, I think it's when you talk about the twelve generals of hell, where mm -hmm. he effectively is like uh, where he made did something wrong, and he basically claims that he's like yeah I accidentally started the Great War because of that. Uh, I mean, imagine that, like, imagine, like, your worst mistake in your own life, and then imagine, like, just, like, you, uh, like, on a spiritual inclination set off, like, the Great War. Um, I, I don't know, it's like, I, I, there's gotta be moments like that where I'm not sure if he necessarily reveled in that, in that notion, or if he felt guilty about it, but it is, I think that he at least, at least had a certain extent that these were powers that if something went wrong, something really went horribly awry. Oh, he, he, um, I mean, you got, you got to think about the, uh, during the Great War, about the, I think it's about the involvement of America in the Great War, that, um, he was very young at this point. Um, he, it was only in sort of like 19, when, when was the Great War? Like 1914 to 18, um, compared to at least 10 years later at this point. I mean, granted that he'd already written, the book of the law, but he obviously knew how to dabble with um, people's intentions that were probably not as well versed in, I guess, manipulation as he is at this point. I think he probably, well, he, he says that he was a, a British intelligence spy for the sake of getting America involved, but you, you can read uh, a lot of uh, references about this. Like that's not totally why the sinking of the Lusitania wasn't totally why America was involved. Um, but likes to contribute a mistake as a success, but the one that he can't forgive himself for reading about it is the, uh, the Bolskin Lodge where he was, um, I think he was trying to, trying to invoke a guardian angel and uh, it's a bit like convoluted really because you're not sure like he's already spoken to his purported guardian angel which is i was so uh, like like i said before it's probably to get him back in to like give him further uh, studies further teachings further points of reference to go off um but like you know it's uh, he admitted those mistakes i guess but for 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 a satirical point of view, I mean, hey, every idea comes from somewhere. I mean, we take great stride in observing the satirical of Twin Peaks, exactly, and then making something serious from it. I mean, like the, I think that the the waiting room is only seen in seasons one and two. Is it twice? 
literally at the end of season two and then in episode three and we never go into the waiting room ever again until we're in a return where it's quite a prolific because it's quite an important story device um you know beyond all the the satire that you might have been presented with um whatever teachings i mean some things come into your life that you um you take inspiration from so maybe you took some sort of inspiration from uh, is it Rubelet? um but definitely takes like inspiration and a lead off of uh off the book of revelations like absolutely you, but then the book of the law and the book of the lies um were written as a almost continuation of the the holy bible because there hadn't been a testament written in however many years and that was his um that was his uh, intention, as it were. Coming back to Alistair Crowley and his more traditional biography, I have written down that he was born on October 12, 1875 as Edward Alexander Crowley in Royal Leamington Spa. Leamington Spa. Oh, sorry, which one? Uh, Leamington Spa. Leamington Spa. Yeah, okay. ignore the A, yeah. But yeah, his father was Edward Crowley and his mother was Emily Bertha Bishop. Uh, his father, despite being a very deeply rooted in, like a, in a more Christian denominational faith, uh, he had a brewery business that led to a uh, tremendous wealth and even an earlier time before uh alistair's uh alistair's birth uh mm. the family is part of the exclusive brethren an evangelical subdivision specifically the plymouth brethren and uh and his father was the type of man where he would read a chapter of the bible to the family every morning and the strange thing is that uh alistair he respected his father referred to him as like my hero and my friend but he right hated his mother like absolutely yes. just despised her uh his mother referred to him as the beast, the beast. which yeah, she actually yeah. embraced yes and uh, what i think that this might be a turning point is that his father died in march of 1887 of tongue cancer uh which at the time even was preventable i think it was more of like a faith-based sort of thing like there's a certain a certain solution that went against like his faith and I and I, I wasn't sure. Did you have any takeaway if this was like a turning point for Alistair? If this is like what led to like a like a basically like a hatred towards God and Christianity? I mean, I think um, as aforementioned, like he definitely at a young age um, he considered uh, or argued the inconsistencies in the Bible, which you know, I mean, which can be quite apparent, um, and he often challenged his religious teachers but yes i knew that he was called the beast from his uh his mother which is quite interesting because obviously that comes up later in his life um i think i mean from a from a religious perspective uh so I, like for, from a young age i was brought up christian for about 13 years of my life but then i started reading uh works of like William Blake and like uh, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, a lot of war poetry, uh, um, sorry, Wilfred Owen and William Blake and Siegfried Sassoon, um, questioning like the very existence of our play for God, as it were. Uh, there's a there's a great poem uh, by William Blake and it's a regards that we are, he was referring to um, really lowly, um churchgoers that uh you know you, you were read at that time uh 
the, the it was all in Latin. The Holy Bible was all in Latin. So the the priests would always read, I guess, a choice of verse, like to really put the fear of God into people. And William Blake, uh, who was like a visionary, a poet and, and an author in himself, um, would always question that, like question why he compared uh, churchgoers like of a, a particular caste, like uh, why they were treated as such more, more or less like the birds feeding. He, he compared, us, compared them to birds feeding on the bread crumbs on the doorstep of the church like we'll never know further and he never saw god as the father he was like no my father is my father um so i feel like it, it, in a sort of weird comparison that as the crowley his intuition or his understanding or whatever he was reading at the time um would have argued why he believes in a in a deity that he might not necessarily feel is there so from a from a strong background i mean he, it was, it was his father a, a mormon i think oh it um, was um well, let me let me just check again it was so the, he's a uh, quaker brethren yeah yeah he was he was a quaker so and it's obviously particularly devout sects that he was a part a part of so i could understand why someone would want to diverge there are like particular instances in his life is it like his younger sister died quite young um would obviously bring a lot of questioning into a young person's life like about the um proliferance and like the existence of a, a of a deity that cared about you so i could understand why he would verge off that tract and why his mother would call him the beast i guess like yeah but yeah it's uh i guess the after his father's death he would inherit a pretty good portion of his father's wealth which even at the time was like a tremendous amount of money i think even then it might have been in the i'm not sure if it's just for today or for the time but it was worth like seven million dollars wow. uh it was around his school time he was uh misbehaving at school and he was also bullied and uh, he was later uh, removed to um, El Albinmernia, uh, which is, uh, and this was because of his, uh, he was dealing with kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, where we start really getting into the more, I guess, like uh, less than benevolent aspects of Crowley at this point, is that he would lose his virginity to uh, his maid on his mother's bed, no less, when he was 16. <laughs> uh, the maid would actually confess and Crowley uh, figured that he could get out of like a bad lie if he lied about something smaller. So he said that he was actually going out uh, for tobacco. And the thing is that uh, this is what led to uh, the maid actually just being fired and like just never found work. I think she uh, became a prostitute, but then like faded out not long after. But uh, it was around also this point where uh, I, well, I think he was doing it for a while, but he became more vocal about the uh, consistent inconsistencies against the Bible and started going against the grain. And I think for him, it was more of like a, it was less of a, uh, not of a denial of God, but knowing that God was there. And, like, uh, Crowley's uh, presence was basically to spite God. Yes. Uh, and then uh, and then his uh, sexual, quote-unquote, sexual immorality that he was, uh, that he was uh, going for, uh, he ended up getting gonorrhea pretty early on. Yes. And um, it was around this time where he got into an interest in poetry, which I know this can go into a lot of different directions. Um, I know people who've read White Stains and just are like, no, that's not for me. 
Yeah. But his his chess, like he, he was a he was an incredible chess player. Like there was a period where he was playing for like two hours a day when he was at a university. And uh, we were talking about mountain climbing, uh, which you know we also mentioned he used without equipment. Uh, but then also he started attending Trinity College in October of 1895. Uh, he would actually become the president of the chess club and even thought about pursuing it as a profession. Uh, he also was going to the Alps, like, you know, on a yearly basis during this time. And uh, it was around this time as well where he, fir- he had his first, like, same-sex relationship. Uh, yes. And uh, he actually deemed it as, like, not just, like, a great spiritual feeling in his life, but one of the greatest moments in his life. Uh, we were also talking about where it's, like, it was highly illegal as well. So yes. he had to really just try to find, like, ways to pursue it, but also, like, try to find a way with people to keep under wraps. One of the most, one of the more prominent figures early on in his life was Herbert Charles Pollitt, uh, who went by the drag uh, persona Diane DeRuji. And the thing is that they end up breaking up because Pollitt was just not as interested in Crawley's obsessions with the occult. And this mm-hmm. is something that Crawley, like, it really, I think this this is actually a relationship that changed him. I don't know if, how that relationship would have been if they kept going, but I think out of all the relationships that didn't, that fell through, this is the one that hurt him the most. Yeah, it's, a, it's it's definitely obviously like pre, well, it's before he uh, was ordained into any um, esoteric order, as it was. It's very quite early on in his life. And what I find quite interesting is that he um, was very much into um, Percy by Shelley's poetry as well, Mary Shelley's um, husband, and uh, famously the poem "Love's Philosophy" by Shelley is in Twin Peaks. That is the poem that is split into three to be delivered to uh, Shelley, uh, Audrey, and Donna. So that's and obviously like the the allusions to chess playing as well. I mean, obviously at this point, like Mark Frost, uh, he he wasn't writing any of those episodes, but it's quite interesting that there's a uh, chess playing quite heavy in um, Crowley's life, and there was a, a huge interest in poetry particularly of uh, Percy Shelley, which is, um, I find that's that's incredible. So, yeah, but, yeah. And uh, I guess also on the topic of writers, um, I, I think it was around this time where Crowley, he ended up, like, uh, coming across Oscar Wilde, mm-hmm. and you would think that these two would, like, be on the same page just, like, with the way they live their lives. And I've never heard anything from Oscar Wilde, but uh, Crowley, he, like, had a scathing contempt for Oscar Wilde. Like, I think he talked about how he was basically, like, openly gay just for opportunistic reasons. Uh, This is the part where I kind of need to put my opinion out there that I think that Crowley, a lot of, like, his life is deeply rooted in spite because... I feel like Oscar Wilde, I, I, I'm actually, uh, I, I think I'm basically quoting the last podcast on the left, but I don't think uh, Oscar Wilde could have cared less about what Crowley was saying about no. that time. And like, I think I, a lot of um, Crowley's uh, life at that time might have been deflection uh, of, of his opinion of uh, people of that um, sexual lifestyle or well, just sexuality even um, as a deflection to his own. I mean, he only really... Um, invoke like allowed like homosexual practice quite late on in uh philema rituals as a it was he used it as a tool in um sex magic um to allow more of an opening i mean like to the, the feeling of we are one everyone is one and the same on the on the physical plane was his sort of understanding but 
I mean, the, the, early on in his life, you you, you got to think that these are probably very human, <laughs> very human feelings, very human uh, emotions that this person's overcome with to um, to then do it to to, to deflect those uh, ideas, as it were. I think like, he was quite young at this point. I think it was he he was in Cambridge, right? So. So it's like early 20s, 22, 23, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a long, it's a little bit of a way before he um, gets involved with uh, the the Hermetic Order, for example, uh, which, you know, like I said before, is like allowed people of every, um, every gender, essentially, to be involved in that order. So yeah, it's, it, I think it was before a time of understanding for, for himself as a young man. Oh yeah. And um, I guess the next part I could point out is that um, it was around this time where he was actually trying to learn Russian uh, before an illness set in, because uh, he wanted to become a future diplomat. Uh, but uh, that ended up falling by the wayside because uh, I believe later that year, his occultic interests were really catapulted by the Book of Black Magic and of Pax by A.E. Wade. And also mm -hmm. The Cloud Upon the Sanctuary by Carl von Eckertshausen. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was around this time where he started publishing, um, I think it's Al Sadama, A Place to Bury Strangers and White Stains, which didn't have any success. Um, and despite the fact that he had excellent grades, uh, he would let leave Cambridge later that year. And um, not long after, he would meet the chemist Julian Baker, uh, who would subsequently, uh, he'd meet... Uh, uh, he would meet his brother-in-law George Cecil Jones. Yes, uh, this is uh, this is where we start getting into the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was relatively new because it was only around for ten years at this point. But Crowley was initiated on November eighteenth of eighteen ninety-eight, uh, where he would learn about ceremonial magic and drugs, and uh, and also like how these are incorporating rituals by Alan Bennett. But it was um, in it was nineteen oh nine when you mentioned it earlier as well, and you said his name, George Cecil Jones, um, advised the use of drugs uh, as an aid to mysticism, to you know further the, the the sort of ideas, further the visions, as it were. So that yeah, he became like George Cecil Jones became his uh, mentor at that point. Um, so yeah, it's it, you, you, the, these friendships and these relationships they start out and then they develop and that's where times times will change. I mean, everything there was a certain um, dependency on drugs, even if they weren't sort of clinically uh, formulated, as it were. So like uh, the, the the downsides of which weren't really understood, but people were administered certain drugs like that that was a height at that time for pharmaceuticals as it were so yeah it, it's completely understandable uh, but the, the fact that george cecil jones decided that hashish from like the middle east it, it would be appropriate to uh, further his understandings further his studies as well it's quite um, it's quite apt and I think the big thing with Crowley is that um, the, what really fascinating about the Golden Dawn was that he viewed it as like a world behind a world. Mm -hmm. uh, and also members believe themselves to be a powerful, spiritual, like uh, basically secret chiefs where uh, this is, be and because of his fascination, he ascended through the ranks. And this was to the dismay of the other members because of his bisexuality and just like the way he presented himself. 
And um, even when he got to the role, when he could become part of the Second Order, the London Lodge actually refused him. So Crowley actually went to Paris and would be initially, or sorry, initiated by Samuel Little, uh, uh, oh sorry, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers. And uh, Mathers would attempt a legal team only for the court of uh, London to be favored because they're the legal tents and rent was paid by them, uh, which would force Crowley and Mathers out of the order by 1900. And um, before we get into anything else about like uh, Crowley onward, and this sounds like I'm just trying to be silly, but I mean this is a serious question, but isn't it weird that the secret society has like a legal team like on both sides? I mean, it's just, you'd think that these two, like, you'd think this would be a secret society where they would fight through each other for like a magic war, like not unlike Alan Moore or Grant Morrison, but it's just, it's very strange. Like how secret can this society be if like legal action has to be pressed? I, I mean, I think with um, orders like this who delve into, like I mentioned earlier, that, you know, um, the Golden Dawn uh, delved into metaphysics, then it goes like, you know, you, you go, it's almost like a pyramid of hierarchy of understanding that you start out with the metaphysics, then you go into paranormal studies and you go to the tip, which is uh, spiritual development, I guess, for, for something like that. Um, for the lower of understanding, um, you need uh, representatives, I guess, of the physical plane. Like you need um, people who are adept with human understanding like the, or the lower lower ranks before you get to the the people who are delving into the spirituality of it all so i think it's completely understandable that they have it and you said you mentioned samuel mabbers and that's the person that i said earlier was the um the person that crowley was trying to undermine because he was believed to be a carlist which um you know i said like it was like someone who supported the Catholic Church, um, because there was still a lot of opposition in the church at that time, uh, and a post-central government in um, in Spain. So he he was purported as being there as a, a spy for British intelligence. That's where it all comes from to oppose this person. So yeah, that's the that that's the guy. So yeah. And um, I guess also this is when uh, he or Crowley would embark on international travel. Uh, like he went into Mexico City, where he claimed he was got he got into Freemasonry there, and um, he started writing more poems, did more mountain climbing. Actually, did a lot of mountain climbing during this time. And uh, to continue on his travels, he set he headed from Mexico City to San Francisco, where he sailed to Hawaii, Japan, and Hong Kong. And he actually reunited with Alan Bennett in uh, Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka, before he headed to India, where he would actually contract malaria. And um, he attempted climbing K two. And even reached twenty thousand feet, uh, and I think this was. Uh, which, to be fair, it, it, full disclosure is that K two is the second highest mountain in the world. So honestly, that's not that's a pretty remarkable feat, even if he didn't make it to the top. But but also, this is around the time where he would uh, marry Rose Kelly uh, to prevent her from being in an arranged marriage. Uh, he met her through her brother Gerald Kelly, and uh, this would actually this marriage would actually damage his friendship with him. Uh, and then we were we talked about it when we were going through the secret history, but they had their honeymoon in Paris, Cairo, or yeah, Paris, Cairo, and Ceylon. And uh, to go a little bit further into their time in Cairo, 
uh, him and Rose, uh, they had a fantastical experience in the pyramids where, and this is totally conjecture where I've heard of conflicting stories, but the one I have written down was that he used magic to light up the room in the pyramid. And the things that they talk about that there were beds there or that they, the light in the room was like an illusion of sorts. But I believe, but I still think regardless, his wife Rose would just be like, just like astounded at seeing any of this happen. Uh, and the weird part is that uh, at, later on that night, Rose acted like a bat that was dying, like in her vicinity. Like she was like crawled around the lamppost, and like I, I think that's where Crowley, where something may or may not have went wrong, because I would highly doubt that was his intent in any way. Uh, but it was around this point where she unknowingly referenced Horace and said, "They are waiting for you." And two days later, would say, "The equinox of the gods has come." And it was dur during this state that she was in where, and I apologize for mispronouncing this, but she led him to the Stell of Ankh F. Kansu, which uh, we were mentioned before, the exhibit number 666, which of course that was like, that was like a major epiphany for, uh, for Alistair Crowley. Uh, but then a month later, he began, he, he began hearing a voice in his head. Uh, this is the introduction of Awas, uh, who was uh, deemed as a messenger of Horus. And like we said before, this is the one where we were talking about lamb, but like this is where the the whole gray alien, uh, where a lot of this can be introduced. Uh, but then Crowley wrote everything instructed to him for three days, which would become book of the law, which would have the quote, "Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law." Um, then he would return to Bolskin, and their relationship would diminish. And um, it was around uh, July twenty eighth of nineteen o five they had their first child, Lilith, which uh, I guess to explain the significance Lilith was uh Adam's wife after Eve so and there's a lot where it's like there's a more malevolent aspect to Lilith like in in like the more biblical aspect and but, she's uh, also referred to in a lot of sort of modern day um culture and a lot of modern day stories as well like she's uh famously a part of I don't know how well versed you are with like anime but um she's a uh, quite an important role in Evangelion, which deals with angels, deals with spirituality, deals with the physics of the plane that we are in while tapping into the unknown. So she's quite a prolific thing. And she's also referred to in the um, Gnostic Bible, uh, Gnostic Gospels of the Bible as well. I think she might be mentioned in the Book of Enoch um, as Adam's, Adam's wife. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it was after Eve. I think it was before Eve that it, she was the wife of, I mean, we'll, we'll, this will be to subjectivity and like probably reading after the fact and then I'll probably come back on with another footnote saying I was wrong. But um, yeah, I think it was the other way around. Like it was like a pre, she was a pre-Eve as it were. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that time he was um, when she received the the voices was the same time as he got the um, I want I keep wanting to say steel it's spelled S T E L E which I think is Stell um, or Stelle of revealing which came from the 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 uh, the priest the falcon god the Montu priest the Ankef and Konsu and it was around that time that then they started conversing about the book of the law and i feel that that, that was probably through there, there are things that i've said like before like you know objects that hold such a proficiency in like in in their history 
that invoke something they give off it's, it's, it's the same as when you go to a certain place and you have a feeling like you feel a sense of belonging in a certain place you are drawn to objects and i think that's exactly the certain way but he was gifted that uh, a month before the dictation of the book of the law and it was around that time that um edith uh, rose uh, kelly rose edith kelly started uh talking about they are here like they, they are they are with us like and it was referring to to horus or a messenger the, the messenger of horus even but it was after this moment where crowley he founded a publication called the society uh, uh the propagation of the religious truth mm -hmm. and uh he attempted to garner uh, uh publicity for his well-reviewed but poorly sold collective works and he rewarded uh it's like a 100 pound reward for the best essay and a uh, military man, JFC Fuller, not only did he write the best essay for this, but he wrote the only essay. Right. And he claimed it to be some of the best poetry ever written. Uh, which, I don't know, it, it just seems really wild that, like, one, it's basically a bribery for a review, but only one person showed up, so by default, like, he was going to be the he best won. one. He obviously really liked White Stains then as well. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, around this point, we were mentioned a little bit earlier, is that uh, Crowley and a crew ventured to uh, Kanchenjunga in Nepal, yes. the world's yeah. most treacherous mountain. The third highest as well, third highest in the world, yeah, yeah. It's probably worth mentioning that Crowley was not the best person, to put it mildly, when it came to like teamwork like with mountaineering. Uh, it was contentious from the start, and there was even a mutiny from the crew. And uh, I believe this is the one where an avalanche like killed them slowly. That's the one. Yeah. And yeah. the thing is that the moment I heard this, uh, that like when they mutinied and said we're going down the mountain, my immediate thought is that Crowley is the one who summoned that avalanche. Oh, uh, I, I don't know. It's I know again that's like total conjecture where people think that he warned them, but then they just like didn't heed his warnings. Other people are deeply in the in the realm of he he summoned this uh did you have any particular stances on how this came through this is the one i mentioned before like the the mountain in the himalayas that because he tried k2 before and he mentioned that he, he um suffered malaria and he threatened to shoot the his team uh, there's a, a great photo of him looking really bedraggled and bearded oh i that. know that that photo yeah. is probably the most terrifying one i've seen yeah like he i mean there's a lot of post photos of crowley uh, i've seen even seen the one of him and um uh what's her name leah hersig um posing naked outside their estate in Boleskin with a goat um but even that wasn't enough to make me go geez he's really it, yeah it, the photo of him at K2 is really quite disturbing. Um, but yeah, that, this is what the, 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 I don't know about invoking an avalanche, um, but they were the, the, the four of the team were definitely killed by it. And it was only then, um, as I said, the, uh, the Sherpa said that a, a Yeti like demon residing there, uh, uh, Zonia, I think would be the best way to say it um was appeased with that sacrifice which is what we're saying about his uh his means and his 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 lines that are drawn for what he should should or shouldn't do were very apparent it was only when mention of this demon was enough to make him say do you know what like that's this is as far as we go so he never never got to the summit of um kanchenjunga which is the yeah like i said the the third highest 
Um, so it, he was definitely um, at this point definitely well versed in uh, spirit. Um, well, dark spirituality, esotericism. At this point, I'm not sure why he felt the need. I mean, it was a obviously a young age thing that he um, climbed the Alps once a year. Fantastic. Um, but I mean, if there was a, a purpose or, or, or a sort of a cultist purpose to climb these mountains, I, I, I couldn't divulge it in any sort of research about that. But I, I'd, I'd hazard a guess that it was to do with uh, furthering some kind of spirituality within him, for sure. Yeah. No, that one I would definitely agree with. Um... But uh, I, I get, but once he finished uh, climbing the mountain, he would continue his travels, and he would even see Rose and Lilith in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also, unfortunately, when he came to Britain, he actually found out that Lilith died of typhoid, and mm-hmm. uh, he actually blamed Rose's drinking. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think was she drinking like at least had severe alcoholism, like even before Lilith's uh, Lilith's birth. I think. Um, I mean, as a as a person. In that realm of his uh, teachings and existence, even you, you take on a lot. I think so. I think um, with Edith Rose, uh, sorry, Rose Edith, uh, because he was it. They, they had a second daughter together. Yeah, they would have uh, in 1907. Uh, Lola Zaza would be born, mm, and she didn't live for very long. Correct? Is that she was quite young? Yeah, I don't, I don't think she was away. as young as uh, as Lilith, but um, admittedly, I don't have a death date for her on that one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of machinations around them at this point would um, drive a person, I think, you know, from an outward standing, that, that this would become a case of enough is enough. Um, so you can only go as far, so far as someone, if particularly if you weren't, of that realm i know that you like you said that and and he did sort of save her from a, an arranged marriage but to to what end would be a sort of a discussion in itself mm-hmm. um there's only so far you can take a person like like i say like he, he was totally of someone who is exploring the true will like of oneself through magic like which only benefits that individual person but all, all, all he was doing in late, later on in life was uh, administering those teachings on other people who were of the same exploration of the same interest um it's, it's quite a selfish act like for for the most part of what he was doing and i'm not gonna like sort of like say that it was for the good of it all but he was definitely someone who knew there was a goal there and it didn't matter who was there to be able to achieve that, you know, it's, um, but it's, it's the mentality. It's clearly the mentality of someone who, who had, um, I wouldn't say given up on the physical plane, but had, um, moved on from the physical plane as a, as a spiritual person, definitely. And I guess, uh, some people fall by the wayside. I, don't, I know he was particularly, devastated by the deaths of uh, I think it was two of his children the, the, the first daughter Lilith and then the, I think there was a third can't remember her name her name fails me you might have it there but um, there's photos of her um, 
dressed in some ritualistic dress as like not like portraits not for any use other than like just nice portraits of her I think she was four years old when she passed away but that devastated his outlook on um on life at that point um but they'd already uh, while he was doing the climbing uh, in 1899 I think was when he um purchased the Bolleskin Lodge in Scotland so it was already a part of his life um maybe for the betterment of getting in touch with uh, the spirits of those he'd lost but I, I doubt it at this point I mean like he is he is called the uh, wickedest man alive after all it's all for the self I think for the initial standing before he gets into the writings of it as acts of teaching for everyone else for sure to come back to 1907 is that uh, he was once again that year, uh, some point some point after Lola Zaza's birth, uh, contacted by AWAS, and this would lead to uh, adding to the Holy Books of Thelema. It was also not long after that he would meet Victor Newberg, who was a poet mm-hmm. at the time, and they both had a very intimate relationship, and Newberg was a disciple of his. And yes. the thing is that uh, there was a lot of sadomasochism involved, and this is going to come back to like a Crowley... Uh, actually, maybe not less of Crawley, more of Newberg's like cutoff points is that uh, is that uh, Newberg was willing to deal with any like you know sexual sadomasochism, but once Crawley started going with the anti-Semitic remarks, that's when it was too far for Newberg. Right. Um, and then later that year, Crawley would start a successor to the Golden Dawn called um, it just written as AA, but it's also known as the Argentium Astrum, also Silver Star. Um, mm-hmm. Alistair and Rose they would actually divorce in 1909. And the, the thing is that, um, actually, Alistair, he actually would uh, conceive that it was his uh, extramarital affairs that would prompt the divorce and Lola staying the care of uh, Rose. And unfortunately, Rose, like only two years later, would be institutionalized. So uh, unfortunately, that was like a family that was like doomed after that. But uh, yes. but some point around this point where uh, Crowley and Newberg would travel to Algeria into the desert where they performed sex, sex magic in favor of animal sacrifice to summon uh Chiranzan. and uh this was actually a moment where uh where crowley deemed this as like a highlight of his magical career and um he did play up the after this uh event he did play up the idea of being a satanist and in favor of human sacrifice despite the fact that those were not his things he just wanted to be inflammatory to the public but it was around this point because it was uh, because this was uh, sex magic that was completely impromptu that Newberg found himself deeply in love with Crowley uh, just because of like just the ramifications of like summoning this demon. And in 1912, Theodore Roos accused Crowley of publishing his secrets of what were mentioned, the Ordo Templus Orientis. And the thing is that Crowley had no idea of the OTO at this point. So once they talked it out, they became friends and uh, Crowley would even lead the British branch of it. And this is around we would incorporate Freemasonry, the an emphasis of sex magic, uh, specifically those who were in the eleventh degree. And uh, what we and actually this is around the time when he wrote him to Pan. Uh, it was around Moscow in nineteen thirteen actually, which was a huge part of Jack Parsons when he'd have a, a rocket test at, at JPL. Yeah. And in nineteen fourteen, uh, Crowley and Newberg drifted apart. And uh, and like uh, I think Crowley even went as far as cursing him. I think that led to a very irreversible trauma to uh, to Newberg because 
uh, Crawley would try to meet Newberg later on in life, and his wife was actually the one saying get away from him. So that really says something about like how bad that relationship fell through at that point. I mean, they, um, this is when I mentioned the uh, talisman that he wore that was like to uh, find great treasure. Is it, It's a talisman that he treasured, pardon the pun, greater on uh greater later on in life in that he it was um I, I mentioned it was smeared with uh the semen of victor newberg and uh his second wife leah hersig uh, like her, her menstrual blood so it stood the test of time that he was still uh using this thing uh much much later after the falling through of his relationship with uh, with Newberg. So the usage of which stood some kind of a testament, I think. Like he, um, there were obviously, I mean, I, I, I couldn't tell you beyond like how they met, like how, um, how they fell apart. But uh, he was um, quite prolific as I said before, like with bisexuality and that, it's, it's, it's horrible to like, it's, it's almost like gaslighting, it's almost like manipulation that these people in his life at this point are far outstaying their usage for one's own further uh, discovery, one's further tutelage in the unknown. Um, I think Jack Parsons, in a way, had quite a registered uh means of doing that because he was like whereas edith was um or rose edith kelly was uh institutionalized um people like marjorie marjorie cameron were quite well versed at this point uh to the point of where marjorie cameron would involve herself in like uh small roles in sort of occultist films and so on um she was very well aware of what was going on and probably quite in, indoctrinated by it at this point. Um, whereas as a Crowley, um, it, it, it is, it is gaslighting. It is manipulation to like people to further his own, um, devices, uh, whether he meant it, meant it to be that way or not. I don't know. I mean, you, you, we, we don't know at all. But he, it furthers the idea that he was definitely someone who was sincere or adamant in furthering his understanding of the like the the unknown, and this is why I keep saying that he he could well be compared to Dweller on the Threshold. Like uh, the, the thing with all of his. Uh, writings and his teachings is he's someone who definitely knows what he's aiming for but whether he got there who knows i mean that that's that's on his deathbed isn't it really like you, you can't but there was a lot of um mental sacrifice that wasn't his own along the way so that's why you could see like why him being called the wickedest man alive has a lot of testament. I know. I know. During this uh, um, podcast, I've been sort of advocating his work, but it's like there are there are there's still human emotion and mentalities that you've got to consider before you even divulge in what you want to um, explore beyond the the realm that 
you know, we still don't really understand. Like we don't really understand the physical plane to a hundred percent of its uh, intention. Like we go, we want to explore beyond. And I think that's what he was doing. Right. It's, uh, it's terrifying, really. Like he, he is a, he is a terrifying as much as he's a interesting individual to explore. Um, but then advocate enough in that you still have uh, Thelemites who still believe in what he was teaching. They celebrate, like, I mean, God, they, they, you have to only go on their subreddit and you can see that they celebrate his... Um, meeting with Rose Edith Kelly, despite her institutionalization. Like they celebrate it. Like the, the, the first word of the, their Godhead, it's insane. But not insane, but I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like the, it sort of surpassed the fact that she ended up in a mental institution. To continue on with that, uh, uh, Crawley would arrive in New York City in 1914 with very little money. Uh, he even wrote for Variety for a time, and he did this while practicing his sex magic. And like we were mentioned earlier, he wrote the pro-German propaganda for the newspaper The Fatherland, uh, which would obviously come back to haunt him. Uh, it was around this time where he attempted the Scarlet Woman ritual, which, as we mentioned previously, he wouldn't succeed in. Uh, and he would travel around America to just make sure Thelema was was like uh, permeating Americans' uh, society. Uh, he would return to London completely broke in December of 1919. And uh, we were mentioned before is that his pro-German writing would lead to the ire of the tabloidist John Bull. And um, after dealing with issues with asthma, uh, his doctor would prescribe him heroin, which would effectively seal his fate with his, uh, his addiction. Uh, then in mid-1920, he would set up Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, uh, where he performed rituals for uh, of the sun god Ra, sometimes performing Gnostic Mass, and um, also, and this one's a real elf in the room, he, while he didn't involve children in it, he allowed children to watch sex magic, uh, which, I don't know, that's, uh, that's I, I think for me, that's a big yikes. It's a, it's a massive yikes, and around this time, he, um, I think he uh, traveled to Palermo as well, Palermo, to uh, get print boys, um, by drugs, like, like, um, he apparently, um, cocaine, uh, destroyed his, uh, well, began to erode his nasal cavity as well. And this is like all after the, the Abbey was formulated as well. So there's clearly like a, um, a destruction in the self like in 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 the body for him like it's uh it's quite alarming as well um oh it was a uh, i can't i can't pronounce her name properly uh pupe was one of his daughters um and he had another daughter called a start lulu panthea with Ninette, which I think uh, is another Scarlet Woman, I believe. Yeah, that, I, um, think, I believe that's the second Scarlet Woman. Right, so because he had another Scarlet Woman, uh, Layla um, had this written for this. Um, Layla, but she she's in the, so, so Interestingly, she is a book plate during a ritual. There's a photograph of her in the Book of Lies, 
um, he, he would call he would call them scarlet women, the, 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 the people that were like mistresses for, for a layman term, um, who were evoking this mysticism, this occultism in him uh, beyond his, his wives. So he definitely explored, like, I mean, you, you can read it, like, again, in layman's terms, that he was definitely an advocator of, like, a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, um, which can be misconstrued in like a lot of uh, like 70s, 80s culture as well, like a, a, as a standing. But there were there were there was meaning for him, at least, uh, behind why he was doing this to open up doors, to open up uh, sites in the mind beyond sight. Um, yeah, like I've, I've said it before, like he was definitely out for himself, like which would uh, allude to him being called the wickedest man alive. And actually, it's probably a good time as any to mention is that uh, during his time with the at the Abbey of Thelema, uh, one Thalamite, uh, Raul Loveday, was forced to drink the blood of a cat and cut himself with razors every time he used the word I. Wow. And uh, his wife, Betty May, reported this. And this is Frank Bull, uh, who we just previously mentioned. This is when he'd label him as the wickedest man in the world. And Crowley, uh, he considered it slander, but he couldn't afford any legal defense. So he was deported from Sicily and prompting the Abbey of Thelema to be closed. And uh, it's like we were saying before, is that uh, this is around when, like, Moonchild was starting to, like, come out and would, like, be published. But, of course, during the 20s, his addiction only worsened. Uh, he did continue writing, and he even married uh, Maria Teresa Sanchez, Although, like, while they did separate, they never formally divorced. Um, he would fake his death in September of 1930, only to reemerge in Berlin three weeks later at his own what? art exhibit. <laughs> what, a, what a hilarious! Like, imagine if that was done now. Like, you know, yeah. think of the think of the 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 standing. Um, imagine if that was televised now. Imagine someone like I don't know, excuse her, but like Taylor Swift did something like that like think of a, a celebrity of of now doing that and the the amount of um press you'd get involved and at that, that time it was probably quite prolific like you 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 wouldn't believe it like it's just unreal he was outright bankrupt by 1935 yes and the big yeah, thing yeah. with him though is that uh is that he was spending three times his income any given year. So this is really something he just brought completely on himself. And the one moment where he could have changed it is that he wrote the Equinox of the Gods, which was well received and actually sold really well. But the real problem is that he only wanted it on the finest parchment. So it was either not very profitable or they even lost money. Right. Uh, and then uh, after this, um, this is when he was like uh, basically living off of what was effectively uh donations from jack parsons and the agape lodge in pasadena and uh we were mentioned before is that uh he considered hitler a black magician after he specifically disbanded the oto in germany and uh he would reach out to the naval intelligence division but was declined uh this is a quick side note because we were mentioned before is that i'm partially convinced that this is like a confessions of a dangerous mind type of situation where mm -hmm. uh where they basically said like publicly they said no uh, but inwardly, 
I wouldn't be surprised because Hitler had an obsession with the occult. Uh, Crowley, of course, knew a thing or two about it and was clearly opposed to the Nazis. Um, I know you were mentioning it a little bit before. Did you have any stances on it? I know that he um, was it with the OTO with Ordo Templi Orientis. He he was denied um, inclusion in the German sect of it in in 1912, and he became head of the British division. And that was the point where he, he anointed that that was when he said that he was. Uh, from it and that was at that point that he he divulged in uh started to divulge in sex magic and uh using homosexuality as a as a movement um apologies um mention uh, say your question again like the do you think there was anything about uh when he reached out to the uh naval intelligence division do you think they actually declined him or do you think that I... there was a certain factor of like him combating uh, in some capacity during World War Two. Oh, I think well because uh, I, I mentioned that Ian Fleming, who who wrote James Bond, was really keen on um, on Alistair Crowley being a interrogator for World War Two, and this is like very close to the end of uh, end of his life at this point. Uh, this is like three years, I think, before um, Crowley passed away. Um, Ian Fleming was really keen on getting him in as a uh, a Nazi, well, an interrogator for Nazis, because uh, Rudolf Hess, as I mentioned, uh, landed in Scotland, and as we all know, like I mean, it's not a not a secret, but Nazis in late stage Nazism were very um, interested in the occult. They were interested in UFOs. They were they were very. Um, yeah, the, it, mysticism was totally a part of their doctrine towards the end of Second World, the, the Second World War. So, and funnily enough, like Rudolf Hess landed in Scotland, which is where the Bolskin Lodge uh, is situated um, in in Loch Ness. But it never fell through. And uh, I mean, at this point, um, he was certainly ravaged um by drug usage like when we get to what year did he die sorry could you uh, oh yeah it's um i guess i'll just wrap up on my last couple notes is that his asthma worsened throughout the 40s which would perpetuate uh -huh. his heroin addiction and he would die on december 1st of 1947 of chronic bronchitis uh with a dozen people attend his funeral and as we mentioned before uh his doctor dying uh, less than 24 hours later um yes yeah, so he really, I mean, he really was like on a real downward decline throughout all of the 40s, at least from what we see as, as widely reported. Yeah, he, he um, whether he cursed that person to the point of a, a ritualistic method, but I think it was uh, the, his funeral had the uh, Gnostic, is it the Gnostic chapel, was the his rites of uh, passage into the afterlife. Um, I think he's uh, buried... Oh no, he was cremated. Um, but there is a headstone in New Jersey, I think. Um, I think that's where he, where he is. Um, but he, I, I think you, you have to account for what he was doing drugs from 1909, which would coincide with um, later on uh, with his meeting with Jack Parsons. That they were using 
drugs, uh, hallucinogens to further their, which is totally, like I said to you, it's, it's totally fine. You have to be of a, a sound mind before you divulge in these things because it amplifies everything you're feeling. Um, whatever your intents and purposes are for doing that, um, Ayahuasca is an interesting drug in that um, you have to do a whole cleanse before you do that. And then after the fact, after whatever you've seen, um, there is a whole physical bodily um, expulsion of everything. It's disgusting. Um, so listeners, if you're interested in that, by all means, just be prepared for the absolute worst after the absolute high. But he was obviously... I still love that line in the secret history, like uh, shed his body. Um, because at this point, his body uh, at 72 couldn't take it anymore. Like the heroin was obviously a, a means of um, seeing or, or believing in a world that we could not uh, touch on in a, a physical state of mind. But he was, uh, yeah, he, cur he cursed that doctor. <laughs> and he did, like, you can you can look up those uh, death records, like, he's he's dead. Like, he died a day later, which is bizarre, but also it's a total X-file. Um, it's bizarre, Um but interesting in light of this person who is out for betterment of the self. I, I, I think, um, yeah, Crowley was definitely a, uh, a selfish person, but as a means to, you could, you could parallel that to scientists of today, like tapping into the unknown, um, nudging it just to see like uh, how we, how we can further ourselves. That's how it's always been. People of that sort of uh, mentality, for sure. And um, actually, because I know we're a little bit past the point, um, did you want me to do like a post recording of promoting Twin Peaks post? Or did you want to oh. sign off on anything? Because uh, like I said, I want to value your time. I don't want to keep you any longer. If you oh, no, like, yeah, this is this is this has been great. Honestly, it's, I've really enjoyed um, talking about this person. Who um, I don't revere him, but it's kind of I really respect what what the, the, the studies that he took in terms of it was quite sort of out there. It was not really by the books, but I mean um, for myself, uh, I'm a huge I'm a huge advocate of esotericism, the occult, and uh, cryptids especially. But for myself. Um, I can be found at uh, Purple Monkey Limited on Instagram. Limited LTD, not the full word. I probably should change that name now because it's uh, it's definitely a Twin Peaks post uh, Instagram now. Uh, I still draw like everything that I'm interested in anyway, like on on outside of the social media. But I can be found at uh, www. <laughs> twinpeakspost.com and you can uh, subscribe to that and you get emails when a new page is uh, published because I'm currently weirdly and I don't know why it came to me in a dream uh, to adapt the entirety of 
the Twin Peaks pilot as a comic book, and it's currently published as a webcomic, and it can be found at that website, and you will be informed of new pages. There's also the graphic novel, which you guys, or you, Colin, and everyone at Twin Peaks, uh, at the Spooky Empire, really supported, which is um, it's a message of love to those people as well that listen, but that, that meant a whole lot that everyone uh, chipped in, uh, bought a copy. It's 65 pages of uh, original artwork, just detailing the entirety of the uh, Twin Peaks pilot so far. And I th I'm hoping it'll be wrapped up in three parts. Um, I'm hoping that we get a hardback of this thing and it'll be really lovely and there'll be the our, uh, Log Lady intro and the um, International Pilot, which I know is a lot of, um, not many, very many people like, but uh, we'll get those pages in there as like a, like an epilogue, like, a, like the Dark Tower by Stephen King. Like, if you want to go further, you can, but you don't have to. Like, you can end your story here. So add those pages in, and it should be a nice uh, fan art tome, completely unofficial. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a great journey. Like, honestly, like, like uncovering each and every facet of every scene is kind of like uncovering each and every facet of like Jack Parsons and Asgrove and to anything in daily life, honestly, like it's, um, it's a beautiful thing. It's very therapeutic, but I'm not going to invoke the, uh, Church of Thelema by any means. No, I wouldn't either. But uh, I guess uh, <laughs> to sign off on my end, I would definitely recommend people checking out Twin Peaks post. I know that uh, it'll be at a certain point where it'll be available at uh, Tweets Cafe, presumably through their merch store. So uh, I'd say definitely support James any way you can. You know, follow on social media because uh, he, he really does. Uh, and I, I really do mean it when I say that the way you convey expressions throughout each panel, it really does add some distinct. Like it's like you were saying before is that it's not just a retelling of the pilot. It's more of like in a way that's very true to it, but also very like much an identity of its own. So absolutely please check out and support uh his comic northwest passage oh, thank you colin thank you so much and i can't wait for luca's uh, theme to sign us out tonight yep. as well uh, well thank you for coming on james thank you colin cheers together forever